Richard is back. You guys saw him <laughs> on the live stream and we enticed him to come to the Liverpool podcast studio. Here he is. Now, if you're not f familiar with the previous work that we did with Richard, it is absolutely fascinating what he specializes in. Narcissism was one area. Psychopathy is another area. And when you combine the two, and when people with the two traits combined meet each other, then what happens? And we did analysis of Epstein and Maxwell. When you've got a narc psych meeting a narc psych, how those traits complement and exacerbate and flourish in a dangerous degree to produce the house of horrors that we saw in the Epstein case. We will be going over some of that stuff again, but we're also going to be going over Harry and Meghan terming, uh, in terms of narcissistic codependence and virtue signaling. We're going to be going over Michael Jackson. We're going to be going over Robin Williams, not Robbie Williams. We're going to be going over Prince Andrew, Jordan Peterson, and the woke movement, and Douglas Murray, as well as stuff to do with the Epstein case. And then we've also got other, other topics include woke virtue signaling. <laughs> I've been watching Jordan Peterson lately. He's, he's quite fascinating. The future rampant criminality of the UK. The road to gulags we're on. Narcissistic psychopathy as a healthy adaptation to a sick culture Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Epstein and Maxwell as symptoms of cultural decline <laughs> so stay with us this is going to be a absolutely fascinating journey into the psychodynamics behind these maniacs <laughs> super predators and royal family members <laughs> <laughs> alright well thanks for coming back Richard thanks for having me in could you just explain to people then what you do for people who are not familiar and you have a massive channel with almost 300k subs and all of Richard's links will be in the description box so tons of uh, videos down there for you to check out as well thank you um well my background was originally I was uh, working as a self-defense instructor right and uh I did that for a while and then YouTube uh, deleted that channel for being too violent I was teaching people how to fight violently, and they didn't like that. They wanted the health and safety version. So you were a self-defense in, instructor through martial arts, is that? Yes. Yeah, karate, yeah. is it? Uh, well, I did, I did uh, karate when I, was a, when I was a kid, and then I did jiu-jitsu. I did yeah. ninjutsu, aikido, judo as I was growing up. Did you... You've trained when karate, us, us. us. <laughs> so multiple martial arts then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was obsessed when I was a kid. Absolutely obsessed. And yeah. the channel that's got the three hundred k subs was mm. that. Is that a new channel or was that the channel that you started out with? The well, it had actually grown out of the self defense channel. So I was teaching people all over the world. To, you know, like it got to the point where there was like special forces guys were following it, bodyguards, even SWAT team members. And uh, for a while, when they were when they were more active, the air marshals. They were based out in uh, Las Vegas. And uh, as I was talking to these guys, they were obviously tough guys, alpha males, but there was a consistent sort of complaint behind the scenes when I'd chat to them over a beer or whatever, which was they couldn't assert themselves. So they'd quite happily shoot someone in the head. 
But if they had an argument with their wife or their kids were kicking off, they couldn't deal with it. So they couldn't deal with low levels of confrontation. So there was an offshoot project, which was helping people to sort of assert themselves where they could in one area, but they couldn't in others. And that sort of morphed into a conversation around predators and the predatory mindset, because obviously I'm helping people defend themselves against criminal predators, people who might try and mug you on the streets, you know, down in Bold Street there, or could be your girlfriend, your husband, your father, your mother, somebody, or your boss, where you know something's happening to you and you know it's wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on it. You can't define it. And then that really, really blew up. That really took off because people were... It wasn't something that was being addressed enough, I think, at the time that I came in. That's really interesting. So you've got tough guys who don't know how to handle low-level confrontation. They only know how to go full-on. Exactly. And it's very common. You know, wow. the guys, obviously, you know, you know guys who are, by any standard, pretty tough guys. But it's very common for them to have this other side of themselves that's quite easy to exploit in certain contexts. You know, if it's intimate relationships or love the big dude with the tats who can fight 10 bastards actually behind closed doors in certain contexts, he can't say no, or yeah. he can't just say, you know, please don't do that and just lay a soft boundary down because all he knows how to do is punch people's faces. <laughs> <laughs> and some situations require a little more diplomacy. And <laughs> so you can't be doing that all the time. And for some people, yeah. that's how they end up, you know, falling foul of the law is because they only have one strategy for dealing with stress and conflict. Right. And, you know, you can't, you can't have that. Um, and did you say that those videos had to be removed? They were removed. I've re-uploaded some of them. So if people look for Richard Granham Martial Arts, they'll see a, they'll see a chubbier version of me from about 10 years ago <laughs> doing my thing and, and teaching people how to do stuff. But yeah, it was removed because I was combining neuro-linguistic programming and psychology and emotional training to help people deal with the, uh, the adrenaline and the, the horror, the emotion and the shock of real violence. Yeah. Not just going, if he does this, then you do, you know, it was like, yeah. how do you feel? How are you going to feel when you're gripped and you start to freeze and you think you're going to be sick or you're going to need the toilet? You know, I'm preparing people for that. And I think it was just once Google had taken over YouTube and it was this slow step towards corporatism, it was a little bit too visceral, I think. Right. All right, so there's a lot of vernacular and I want to lay down that language after mm. we um, just do an analysis first of what you're going to say about Harry and Meghan mm -hmm. and their recent behaviour. Mm -hmm. So what is your interpretation of that then? I think uh, when people have been through traumatic childhoods, which by any measure I think we can all agree Harry has been through, um, it leaves them with certain wounds. It leaves them with certain issues. In Harry's case, we could say there is both a mother wound and a father wound there. Not everybody who's born into great wealth and privilege has a great time. It can be a torturous experience, even if you're mega wealthy, mega famous. We on the outside look at that and go, well, it's all right for them. They don't have to do this. But it's it's hard and it's it's an unpleasant life, I think, for them. And he had it particularly bad because he lost his mother at such a young age and then there was so much conjecture and uh, drama around that. And I think his relationship with his father was never particularly strong. So who else has he got to turn to? Well, he's got the royals to turn to, who are, you know, they're, they're British nobility. And I think we all have to be realistic in our expectation for how warm and kind. You know, I'm sure that they are in their way, but... 
they're not. <laughs> you know, can, you, can you do an impression of a shape-shifting reptilian? <laughs> <laughs> now, I thought we weren't going to mention Mr. Icon <laughs> on this one. Um, Mr. Blip. <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 look, you look at the family and you just think, wow, what that must have been like for him growing up. And then I think, I think, he, found, I think he found his way um, through the military. So he had another family and he had... Uh, he had his mates and he did have that sort of respect and he did have a kind of a status which within the royal family he's never going to get because he wasn't the firstborn so he's not on track for anything Um, but he did have status and he did have solidarity and camaraderie in the military which was all fine through his 20s but then you hit a certain age and we've all been especially for men I think like you get to 28, 29, 30 and most men go into a kind of crisis (laughs) because like boyhood's over you can't just spend all your time doing what Harry was doing, running around, you know, drinking champagne out of a prosthetic leg and chasing <laughs> his mates naked around casinos. You know, you've got to be like, okay, I'm going to grow up now. And at that point where I think he was really ready to sort of find somebody to be with, um, somebody got their talons deep into him. And I don't think it would have been hard to do. Really deep, really deep. I imagine, and I think he would have been easy prey. I think fundamentally he would have felt very, very lonely, very isolated, um, out of place, which which he is, which is what people loved him for, is that he was the outsider, he was a bit wild, and we all loved him for that. But you, it's not, it's not a mode of living through adulthood, and nobody was there, it doesn't seem like, to guide him from boyhood to manhood. And so what happens? Well, a girl comes along and she's like, oh, I'll do that for you. And she just took him and moulded him and has pushed him into, at this point, what I would only describe as a catastrophic direction. So being raised in the royal family has got to be a mind bender for anybody. Yeah. It's like titles. Yeah. It's all about titles in that yeah. class of people. Yeah. And you said that he, you know, he's not going to get the crown. Mm. So do you think that would have crushed his spirit as a young person to not be the person who's going to be, have the, the biggest title, the crown. I think, I, th- I mean, I think looking from the outside in, I, I, I was raised in, um, in private school. So I was around people who were rich. They weren't nobility, but they were old English money. And I think there is an economy of prestige and it becomes the higher you go up, the less money matters because there's so much. And then there's avarice around, as you say, titles, prestige, lineage, even land. You know, what you know, what land are you going to inherit? And what does that mean? Because it means something. It doesn't mean anything to me and you. We'd be like, I don't even know what castle you're referring to. But to them, it's a thing. So they're still humans. They're still in a dominance hierarchy. It's just a weird dominance hierarchy. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There was something that to be aspired to that he knows he's never going to get. And he's always going to be the second one, which is going to give, you know, it's uh, Alfred Adler for people who are interested, the psychoanalyst. He came up with the concept of an inferiority complex. Of course, you have an inferiority complex. You shouldn't, as a child, be told, no matter what, you are number two and you'll wear that. And everybody in the world's going to know because <laughs> you're in the public eye. You're naked 24-7 everybody's going to know that you're second. Yeah, that would that would suck. That would be hard. So I'm trying to get to the bottom of the factors that have crushed his spirit. So let's go on to the media. Mm. So you've got constant media 
spotlight on your life. Mm -hmm. You've got your mum, mm -hmm. the fatality, mm -hmm. and the media's role in that. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the book that she wrote, Princess Diana in her own words, whereby she talks about Charles having a knocked off. Mm -hmm. It would it would possibly look like a car crash mm -hmm. that she wrote to mm -hmm. a letter to her own lawyer. Yep. You've got all this in the public arena because of the media. Mm -hmm. You've got Charles sleeping with Camilla on the night before he gets married to Princess Di. Mm. I mean, he's going to have access to all this information, isn't he? Oh, God, yeah. That's, what's that going to do to his head? What, whatever we know, we probably know 30%. Yeah. So he's got an access to another 70%. And what would it do to his head? It will fill him with rage. Rage. Right, a child's rage. An infant's rage is boundaryless. And we see him smiling and, you know, he's a good chap and he's been in the military and all that. I think he's furious, as we would be. Something took his mother away from him. The one good thing in his life, the, the one person who was genuinely kind and human and authentic in his environment was taken away by the same institution, uh, by the same family who has treated him so coldly and made him second place. So I'm not surprised he's, he's lashing out in this way now. And because of the emotional dysregulation, because of the trauma of it, he, of course, I'm sure he's making mistakes in his assessment. He's ascribing malice where there is none. He would be paranoid. There would be delusions of paranoia and, and ideas of reference that would creep in. At the same time, this thing with the media, and I think this happened to his mum and it would happen to any one of us, as much as you hate the media and as much as you hate the paps, his mum hated the paps, she hated the media, you'd get addicted to it. We, nobody can sit there and not me I wouldn't want it put your phone down see what happens social media proves we are all intrinsically narcissistic so as much as you know the, you remember I was I was old enough to remember the games she used to play we people who are old enough to remember when she was alive that's what she was known for I hate the press don't look at me and then she'd be offered the excuse the chance to go out the back of the building and she'd go out the front and go oh my god I hate this there was that side to it. And I'm not saying he's acquired that genetically. I think that's just the warping effect of fame. Like it, it, it damages, it, if you let it, it can damage your brain, I think. Not damage your brain, literally. It affects your ego. All right. Factors that have crushed Harry's spirit. We've got his number two. Mm -hmm. We've got the role of the media. Yeah. The death of his mom. Yes. How, how old was he and how would that have affected him? Uh, I want to, he was very, very small, wasn't he? Wasn't he like four or three or he was very, very young. And, you know, as you've just alluded to, uh, she did say to her lawyer something along the lines of, if I die, check the brakes on my car. I mean, it's, it's very, uh, I presume we're not going to get into the conspiracy of that now, but there certainly there were reasons to want her to be dead. And certainly it they're very suspicious. There are a lot of questions that remain unanswered around her death. So um, so there was the removal of someone who genuinely loved him, that he had a genuine connection with, and then there is the possibility of real violence. And, and I think Meghan Markle is, is pushing this button with him, um, the possibility that it was race-related, race and culture, because the guy she was with, uh, Al-Fayed, was um, brown, obviously, and Muslim. And this is before we went back into Iraq and Afghanistan. This was before the, and it, 
I'm sure that they knew what our plans were. I'm sure that they would have been. And so there is, there's the there's the race, ethnicity, and cultural issue there. Um, so yeah, no, I'm sure he is. I can only imagine how much pain there is around that and how much that would, would damage you. But all of these issues, especially with time, once you get out your crazy drinking years in your 20s where you try not to feel, you try not to think about it too much, it all catches up eventually. And uh, this is the legacy that he's living with, these different factors that you mentioned. All right, so aside from those three factors then, are there any other factors that come to mind to you that would have crushed his spirit over the years? I'd... I'm on the outside and I'm, I'm looking in. It doesn't look like his father is very loving and very close to him. And, and there have been, there are other conspiracies and allegations about the legitimacy of, of whether they are actually related. I don't, I don't know, but absolutely, I mean, that would destroy you. Who's, mum's not around. If dad's not interested, who, who's parenting him? Where's the love coming from? Does he have love in his life? Or does he fit maybe from maybe from his brother a little bit? But that doesn't replicate. That's not gonna that's not gonna do do what needs to be done. And as you mentioned before, being so young and having that happen and all of the pomp and circumstance and drama around the death it would be like a nuclear bomb going off in the in the mind of a child that small. I mean, he it probably took him months to even realise that she wasn't actually coming back, that all of this meant something that was beyond him. So very hard, very, very hard. And the clues are coming out to back these four things up, aren't they? Because we just saw him recently announce that his dad has genetically inherited a DNA whereby babies are handed over to nannies and there's no maternal bonding. There's no proper family upbringing. It's just this sterile environment of the royal household and he's, 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 it's, it's kind of like it's all pouring out of him now. Yeah. Is that what you're sensing? I, th I think so. I think um, there's a good series that's, that's come out fairly recently, The Crown. And, okay, it's not, it's, not his, it's not historically factual always, but it gives us a good insight into what that class or cast of people are like. And they, these are the people who, not now, because it's all symbolic, but previously for centuries ran the world. They ran Europe, their lineage. For some reason, we're not taught this in school. They held Europe, these Germans and Greeks and, and, and Scandinavian, because these are not, our royal family is not English. This, this clique, this clan dominated the world. And yeah, the people who dominate the world not necessarily the cuddliest and kindest <laughs> amongst us because that doesn't lead to domination. That leads to submission typically. So, so yeah, they're, they're unkind. And, and I saw a little bit of the legacy of, of that in the private school system where there's a fear of intimacy. And I, I even would look around because I was raised in Portugal, which was warm and fuzzy. And then I was shoved into an English private school system. I was like, you guys are insane. And you can almost feel the effort to breed young officers who would go into foreign countries and do terrible things to people because of this disconnect. I am superior to you. And that is a given. There's no question whatsoever. It's a systemic entrainment of, of privilege, but it requires cruelty. It's like, it's like what the Spartans used to do to their kids. You traumatise them when they're young and it activates that psychopathic narcissistic DNA. Wow. 
What about then Harry recently lashing out at Bashir, mm. claiming that his mum would still be alive if it wasn't for the BBC Bashir interview? I think it's very tempting. I think he. I think he has a strong case because she was, she was, she was uh, psychologically fragile and probably had eating disorders and and self image issues and everything else before she was involved uh, with Charles. But so she wasn't. I mean, she's not like the Queen's tough. She's that's a tough, tough, strong-willed woman. Princess Diana wasn't like that, and so she was buffeted around, and she would have cared what people were saying about her. She would have been tortured. I mean, thank God social media wasn't around then, because it would have been even worse for her. So, can you draw a direct correlation? In in my humble opinion, I don't want to say. Think that gets your channel into trouble. I, in my humble opinion, based on my understanding of the situation, the decision had been made by somebody that life for the royal family and that brand would be easier if she was not around anymore. So I don't know whether the interview was the thing, but certainly it it would have deteriorated her psychological state. The stress of that and the the tactics that were used to get her into the interview and everything would have been very aggravating. So for somebody who was already quite mentally unwell and fragile, yes, it would have made her sicker for sure. All right, so we've looked at all of the factors then affecting Harry's mental health. You left off saying he was on a road to catastrophe. Let's pick up there. So I think what what's happened is it's funny with the royal family there's been a history of american actresses and a tendency for the royals to make bad decisions and to go for american actresses so here this this girl comes along she claims that she doesn't know the royal family and doesn't study it utter nonsense utter nonsense she would be she would give you a better psychoanalysis than i or anybody else could have of his mother because what she's done is she showed up and deliberate, in my humble opinion, deliberately tried to reflect as an image of his, a spectre of his mother, knowing that that's what he's craving for in his soul, because he's not resolved these issues. He's probably never had the opportunity to really grieve for the loss of his mother. And here she comes and she would have adopted that role very, very quickly and pushed those buttons for him. And um, I, as I said earlier, I don't think he would have been a hard mark for her at all. Um, she understood She understood and understands exactly what she's doing and he's all the way in her grip right now. Could you expand on the buttons she would have pushed? Um, you know, when we talk about narcissism and psychopathy, there's all this highfalutin language and the terms from the DSM and the psychiatrist and everything. But really, I think you can state it in a way that's quite simple. The dude was lonely hmm. and he couldn't, connect with anybody like he can have his mates from from school and from the military but that's all that uh, they're interacting with the avatar of harry as the hail fellow well met you know he's the fun you know so there's no vulnerability there there's no intimacy but with her because there would have been uh, there would have been that sexual element and then there is the love element to it she the 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 buttons that she needed to push is just the fact that he's isolated and lonely and craving human connection and she would have given him that in spades and on she wouldn't have limited that she would there's no need for her with her strategy to limit giving him validation and love as long as he's doing what he's told so she can turn that on and off now so if he misbehaves off it goes or she wouldn't even have to turn it off she just lift her hand to the tap and he'll panic 
a deathly panic, a, a, a total terror of abandonment. And over time, what will happen, to go back to the technical language, he will start he will start acting like he has borderline personality disorder because of the the emotional terrorism cycle that he's in because he's he's basically he's trauma bonded to it in in a certain sense and i'm not saying this literally i hope nobody clips this out he she's kind of kidnapped him and is terrorizing him but i don't know how mean she would need to be to do that she might be mean sometimes and nice at other times um but she holds the key to everything because if she leaves him now, he really will be devastated. Like if he, if she pulls the hooks out, there'll be a bloody mess, emotionally speaking, that will last for years for him. So for people who are not familiar with DSM then, mm. what traits of BPD would manifest, would you expect to see? I think what we will see now will be more evidence of intense emotional dysregulation. So you'll see him bounce up and down in terms of mood. He's going to start, it's BPD overlapping with the typical effects of narcissistic victimhood because he's a victim of narcissist. His personality will now start to shift in dramatic ways. People who've known him for years will say, I don't recognize this person who showed up. Um, I think all of his interpersonal relationships now would get much more turbulent. Well, we already know that that's happening, which is a classic sign of BPD. I think we'll see self-harm. And I think that's what you're witnessing now with this, this absurd bridge burning and you know, to his brother, his, his his father, his grandmother, and you just think, all right, you're angry, calm down. <laughs> like, there's no, there's re- mm-hmm. but it, it's it's almost like uh, the essence of of the borderline. The why it's called borderline personality disorder is because you're somewhere on the borderline between neurosis and psychosis, and the psychosis here is that rage we sp- spoke about earlier, just the rage of a child. It's boundaryless, and if it's felt, it will be psychotic levels of anger. In order to not go there, he'll have to keep pushing that down, which is which is exhausting, and it will show up as abandonment terror. So that's the other element of the the BPD uh, thing that we'll see with him is he will be terrified of being abandoned by uh, Megan at this point. All right. So the racism overtures that came out in the Oprah interview. What do you think that's all about? Did you see that coming? No. <laughs> I think like, uh, you know, we said before that, that with the, the media, you have this like integration of, I hate the media, they're invasive, but I'm also kind of addicted to it. Yeah. I think this integrates in the same way where he's, I think he's Gen, oh, he's a millennial, not quite Gen Z. Because of the age he is and the, and the it's a, it, they're in a different world than we are as, as Gen Xers. It's, it's hard for us to access the mindset of a millennial, even though they're not that much younger than us. It's almost like boomers have more in relationship with millennials. They live in a different mindset. And I think that was the integration, was like the paranoia over his mother's death, probably justified, um, not in the way that most people would think. Uh, in my opinion, it's got more to do with the fact that he was Muslim than that he was a different different ethnicity. Had he been Chechen and Muslim, it would have been just as bad, just as dangerous at that moment in history. But it, it, it interrelates with this whole woke movement and like the worst thing in the world to be for a millennial is racist. I mean, you're better off being a murderer than a racist because those are the cultural coordinates that they're operating from. So I wasn't surprised at all when, when they were going to claim that their royal family is racist and that they, they are the... 
he's the vicarious victim of, ra- of racism as a white man from a white family because his wife is not white and his child would not be completely white. I'm not convinced myself personally that the royal family is racist in that way, in the way that they mean. I think that there is an old school, you know, colonial era era tone deafness and uh, their values certainly wouldn't match the values of a modern 25-year-old person, for sure, for sure. But I don't think that they're... I don't think it's the kind of racism that a millennial thinks it is. I think it's it's hard to penetrate. There are different class of people who may as well, because of the way the world has accelerated so quickly, yes, they're from 60 years ago, but they may as well be from 260 years ago. It's just a different mindset, a different world altogether. So are you thereby saying then that because of Princess Diana's relationship around the time of her death as Dodie Alfire Dodie yeah yeah. are you saying that Harry has given an F you to that attitude by entering a relationship with a mixed race person well I mean just just a footnote to that there were some suggestions that Princess Diana might actually have been pregnant by, by Dodie at the time which I'm not on the inside track. I'm just, I'm just theorizing. But imagine watching that situation unfold and saying, where do we draw the boundary on this? And then some, some not very nice people saying, well, she's actually going to have uh, a brown and Muslim baby. And then just going, okay, no. So there is the pregnancy and there's the baby element to it. Yeah, I think there is a little bit of a, of a fuck you. He's always been a rebel. He was a rebel when he put on the Nazi uniform to go to a un- uh, fancy dress party. Um he could be. I think he wants to be cool, um, and I think, I think that there is an element of of fu to it, and I suspect a person of, you know, of his. I think he probably just genuinely likes her as well, and there is more. There's more opportunity. Travels cheaper. There's more opportunity for people in that age group to meet each other. It's tempting to just say, "Oh, he got with a girl." of mixed heritage because you wanted to say a few. Yeah, maybe. And maybe he just, he just met her and liked her. Wasn't he mentioned in the Kanye song? I'm sure he just wants to be cool. He wants to be like, he wants to be, and that, and and that's fine. But he might, he might genuinely, uh, it could just be a case of really liking this girl. But my, my view on that, um, by the way, is they really, they really played their cards in a strange way because now, I would say that Britain has never been readier for somebody of mixed heritage to be a princess. She could have been bigger than Diane. She she could have been more beloved. She would have been this generation's Diana. And I think she looked at what that meant. She looked at the creaky floorboards. She looked at the old badges and the weird, musty people. And she was like, fuck this. I want to go back to America and live in a nice villa out in California next to Oprah. Thank you. Because... Because it is musty and old and weird and traditions and odd food and it's all a bit dowdy and they're outdoorsy people who go hunting and Megan's not. She is a product of her generation as well. She wants to be in Dubai and Miami and, you know, she's a kid. She wants to do that. And I think she looked at it and she probably was smart enough to realise I could be bigger. She didn't want to be. She doesn't, she doesn't. And also the money's not there. I think I think we you can't have a conversation like this without talking about the money. It's not great being a royal family member anymore, financially speaking, and it's a lot of 
it's a lot of duty and it's a lot of hassle. Whereas maybe if I was in the same age group as, as Harry and Meghan, I'd look around and I'd go, well, actually, no, I'd just rather be a super influencer. And I think that's what they're trying to be, super influencers. They want to be social media stars, but at that multi, multi-million dollar level. And that's the decision they've made. So the reason I bring that up is because I find the argumentation of racism, it's not that it's false. Of course, these old nobility, of course, they've, they've got attitudes that none of us would be really comfy with. But I think also they could have done very well. And that, that belies this, oh, we had to leave because, because Meghan's mixed race. We would never be... Ex- I'm like, that's, that's not true. She, she knows. Elizabeth is, is a very shrewd woman. She knows it's a brand. And it needs to be updated. And I, I, I stand by this. I might get some hate in the comments. Britain has never been readier for a mixed heritage princess than right now in 2021. She could have done wonderfully. She chose not to. She didn't want it. And she took Harry with her. Following on from that point then. So in The Crown, you see how crushing the protocol, the pressure, the tours, the engagements was on the royal family members, including Di, the pressure. Um, even though she flourished at it, just just the sterile atmosphere, the uncaringness. Mm-hmm. Do you think Harry, you know, you said she, that uh, Meghan could have become this person, this successful mm-hmm. person in that structure, mm-hmm. but do you think Harry would have extricated her from that because of how that crushed Di's spirit? Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have wanted, wanted a repeat of what happened to his mum, what happened yeah. to his wife. Very, very possibly. I think I, I, I definitely don't want to sit here and say, oh, the American actress stole our prince. That's because that's not what, what has happened. It's a folly à deux. There's two people who've come together. They share it. Um, they, the, I think the big thing for them is they're two fame hungry millennials and they share similar delusions and, and they share race is a part of it but it's absolutely it's not even secondary it's tertiary to culture their cultural coordinates are how famous am i how loved am i what am i famous for so yeah like i'm sure if if she was sort of given the the wrinkled nose to the creaky floorboards and the and the haggis again you know and the old you know whatever lord that she sat next to at the restaurant he'd see it and yeah he probably also was looking for a bit of flight from uh, the duty and the sacrifice because I'm not a royalist (laughs) from the Wirral and from a working class family. And if you told me we'll set up a royal family tomorrow from nothing, I'd say don't do that. But we've got to tell the truth. It's a life of servitude. They serve. They are servants. And yes, it's very privileged and very nice. I think... I think if either of us did it for three months, we would start going mad inside of a couple of weeks. <laughs> so and, you'd, and you would want to leave. So yes, Harry is also a motivating factor there. All right, you said two interesting things that I want to combine. You said that there's a possibility that Diana was pregnant. Mm. And you've also said that you estimate that Harry knows an additional 70% of what is going on that we will never know. So mm. let's assume then that she was pregnant. And I think that's, that's quite a possibility. Mm. And that that lies within the 70% that Harry knew. Mm. So then by having a mixed race kid, mm. he's done mm. what his mother had had almost done. Mm. Mm. Do you think that would be a subconscious drive for him to do that in some way? Very possibly. Um, you know, if we, if we wanted to get into the subconscious and the unconscious drives, 
wary of a more psychoanalytic leaning like like a freudian leaning you would say oh maybe he's fulfilling a rescue fantasy because that would have been his younger half brother or sister who is now dead and in a sense now he can replicate that situation and leave there's power in flight there's power in leaving um it's it's a weak power but there is something to be able to ah okay we've got this sorted it let's go let's leave this behind us now but of course they haven't really left it behind them. So yeah, no, I think that's a that's that's an insightful point, um, and and I think the psychoanalyst would agree. It would almost it would almost be like living a rescue fantasy. You also said that there are conspiracies around her death and suspected <laughs> perpetrators. I did say that. <laughs> what is your theory on that? Um. Well. So I, I, when people say I'm a conspiracy theorist, I'm always like, no, 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 I'm an official story denier. When you're a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, you have to actually give a theory of who you think was responsible. Um, I've thought about it a lot over the years, uh, not least because I was young when it happened, but I, I, I remember having the conversation with my mum and saying they, they, will, they will kill her because of the defiance, the, the flagrant defiance. But, but who is they? Do I think Elizabeth and Philip sat down and said, hey, you know, we've got to do her in. Off with her head. We're off with her. <laughs> I, I just think, I don't, I don't think it would have been quite so vulgar, but somebody may have come along and said, hey, there's some chaps who we know and they have this idea. And um, we were wondering what you think of the idea. And then if you're turning this into the into a movie and that scene in the movie, the queen would just wouldn't say anything. She'd just look at you and you'd be like, okay, mom, and off you. <laughs> but she wouldn't say yes or no. It would just be a silence. It's like all these advisors, isn't it, that are in the kind of running things? It's a brand. It's it's always been a brand and and it's a powerful, powerful brand. And there's a lot of vested interests with ties to the military. So, you know, are there ex-SBS and SAS guys who are extremely loyal hanging around looking for money, nursing their PTSD through alcoholism, not to stereotype, but many people are struggling with that. Um, and somebody came up with a proposition and said, you know, this is what we can do. I suspect so. Did they make a, a, a mess of it? Yes, because life happens that way. You know, if it's a crime that you're trying to do and you plan it, Bad things happen, as it did in this scenario, because she didn't die instantly. But how crazy is it that she wrote it would happen in a car? She knew it would be a car. She knew she. I'm. Isn't the line something like if if I die in a car crash, have the brakes checked, something like that? And she like, said uh, she said she suspected Charles was gonna was gonna be behind that. Mm, mm, uh, very very possibly. I mean, uh, wait, wait, I'm not I'm not defending anyone. This is not a defense. But in order to help people to understand, um, in order to get some insight, because it's easy to go, oh, my God, that's awful, and I'm outraged, and then you just stop thinking. That's a perfectly valid moral response. But it's more interesting, I think, to get a multidimensional view of it and go, wow, how could you do that? Like, what mindset would you be in to bring you to that conclusion? And I think you have to put yourself in the historical moment that they were living, where the, the, the pieces on the chessboard then are different to what they are today. And they knew what was, I think, and I am a conspiracy theorist, I think they knew we were that Iraq and Afghanistan and ultimately Iran were on the list. I think that they knew that we were going to 
there's, there's plenty of evidence that we knew we would be pinning things on Muslims for years to come. They were to be the new designated enemy. And had she chosen anybody else, an Italian, a Spaniard, uh, anybody else, she, she may very well still be alive today. But she, that's who she chose. And just so people know that we're not pulling this out the clear blue, if you read Princess Diana in her own words, you can get the specific quote about dying in a car crash, the brakes, Charles, whatever it is, whatever we've we've paraphrased. And, and there's and if people want to come to me, there's, uh, I'd have to dig them out. But there are quotes from movies before nine eleven where they were talking about it was just that was just on the chessboard at the time. We were probably going to go back and finish off the job in Iraq. We were probably going to... There's, there's, there's a line in a film called The Long Kiss Goodnight where they talk about doing 9-11. And, the, and they, the, the main character says to the evil CIA guy, how are you going to fake killing 5,000 people? And he says, I don't know how to fake killing 5,000 people. I guess I'll just have to kill them. <laughs> and who are you going to blame it on? And he says, the line is, we'll blame it on the Muslims. I'm not saying it's, I don't believe it's predictive programming and the director has an insight into what's going to happen. I don't believe that. I think it was in the air. It was, that's the direction the world was pointed in pre 9-11 and her, I nearly said her assassination, her, her accidental death occurred pre 9-11. And so there is a, there's a trajectory to the narrative. I think that people should take a good long look at in this case. All right. So, what is in store then for Harry and Meghan's relationship based on all your research? He he will he will slowly atrophy as a human being. Um I I really believe that. I think uh I don't know if you remember the scene in The Lord of the Rings where the spider gets hold of Frodo and ties him up and then injects him and then he slowly gets drained. Um I see this I, I do think there's a folly à deux, but in terms of predator versus prey, I think Megan holds the whip hand here and I think we will see him uh, physically deteriorate and emotionally deteriorate the claims he makes publicly will become more and more outlandish you're going to hear that he's developed an addiction to painkillers, alcohol or, or something to help him cope um, and yeah he'll get, he'll get very very sick until or if he lays down a boundary with her and says right that's it, which he could still do. He can completely salvage himself at this point if he can extricate himself from her from her grasp. He 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 is uh, salvageable, but it would be it would take an enormous from from where he is. I nearly said I've been in his position. I've been in his position. That's really complicated. But I've been with bad women uh, twice in my life where I knew I'd sit there and I'd go if I unplug, I'll. Yes, it's better, but this is going to really hurt. And it hurt way worse than I thought it did. It took years to recover. So he'd have to be extremely courageous to do it. But otherwise, yeah, I think we'll see him deteriorate. Could his children be his salvation? His children would be a, a, a balm, a sort of like, you know, he again, it's generational. His generation would fawn all over their children to, to an excessive degree, in my humble opinion. It will be, it will help him. And I think that that would become the focus of his life, but it wouldn't, it's still a life of, you know, sadly, uh, he escaped the Royal family to avoid that servitude only to find a new master. And he's still a slave and, and he will remain a slave while, while he's with her, unfortunately. So we've looked at a lot of Harry's life history and, major events that have, may have played a role in his psychology. Mm. 
What major events have played a role in Megan's psychology? I think um, it, with her, it's very, very simple. Uh, she was rejected. She's been rejected. And for a narcissist, in the worst way, she's had the mirror of truth shoved up in her face, which is, yeah, you're, you're pretty. Well, guess what? There's, it's, it's America. There's hundreds of thousands of girls just like you. And uh, yeah, you had a chance. And I think she's the, the worst thing is she was in a position where if she was going to go up, she would have done with her role in Suits. But she didn't. She went down. You'll see her in various B-list sci-fi movies and secondary roles. And it would have been extremely painful for her because I think she believed that she was destined for stardom. Well, no, she does believe she's destined for stardom and she'll do anything to, to get to where she believes she should be. So I think just, just rejection. You can understand everything about her um, through entitlement and rejection, I think. So you're saying then that a failed movie career, the stardom that she desired from that now, mm. she's replaced the means to achieve the stardom by mm. marrying one of the most famous people in the entire world. You know, there's a really creepy parallel here that I would recommend people check out. I can't remember the name of his new documentary. Adam Curtis's new documentary explores the psychology of Mao's wife because she was she was hugely important in the in the revolution, and um, you can trace her rejection from acting. She even went back and managed to imprison and kill some of the people who'd, who'd rejected her. So she got with Mao. She didn't love him. She got with him because he was powerful. She was she she was kicked not kicked out of the Chinese uh, film industry, but she was known for being uh, what do you call it a prima donna, and um, yeah, she she took her vengeance. So if you want an insight into Meghan Markle, look at German <laughs> Mao's wife. <laughs> so she's achieved this fame now. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that at some point she will dump Harry? based on her track record of relationships and family relationships in particular? I think I think she's going to need... I, I, could, I could fall flat on my face and, and get this one wrong. I think she's going to need him for a while. And um, he's powerful still as a token. Um, so it's like reverse tokenism, if you like. She needs... He's still royalty. Now, if she gets with... Again, we're in the we're we're outside the economy of money now. We're in the economy of prestige, which you mentioned before with titles. Mm -hmm. So, and it reminds me of the 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 Jeffrey Epstein thing. So, it, you can get she could get with a famous film star or a director or whatever who's worth three hundred and sixty million dollars. He's not a prince. Harry will always be a prince, and she can. It, what a great flex to tell her friends at the at the club or whatever it is. She's still associated to the British royal family, and I think. For us as Brits, it's hard for us to understand what we mean to Americans. There are Americans sat here watching us now. If we spoke in American accents, they wouldn't watch us because it's another world for America. And the royals, I think, will always be fascinating for a good cross-section of, of America um, in a way that their politics is fascinating for us. We're sort of like watching each other across the pond. So, no, I think... Um, uh, no matter what happens, it would take a lot for her to lose him because he really is a, he is a token. He really is. So in the world of titles for her, she's at the peak. The only way is down. Really? I mean, what what can you... 
you know, like marry a prince of Spain or I don't even think the Spanish monarch. Uh, I don't even know what you can compare it to. She'd have to go after, what's his name, William. <laughs> She'd have to go after William's wife, yeah. And she's done, I mean, and she's done so well in terms of the public eye and managing that public image. She barely puts a foot wrong. She's done her job by the royal family standards and, you know, she must hate her. She must absolutely hate her. Um, but yeah, she, the, the, only, the only other option is William. Because yeah, everybody else is 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 down. There's nothing from where she's from and where she is and what her ambitions are. There's nothing cooler or higher prestige than a, a, a real British prince. But it's like you know, if you're taking a drug or you're trying to achieve anything, when you get to that point, mm. doesn't it wear off at some point? The novelty of that, always, always. And um, I think I think you raise a good point. Um, maybe. Um, it, it it wouldn't it as a as a narcissist, which I believe she is a true classic malignant NPD. It won't matter how she feels if the drug is worn off. It only matters how other people see it. So as long as other people keep telling her it's cool, that's the drug. That's the narcissistic supply. She probably is already bored. She was probably bored within three weeks. I'm sure once you get in those those creaky castles are real creaky and stinky and old and musty. It's not that fancy. So that would have worn off very, very rapidly. She would have seen through that whole delusional American Disney image of what real royalty is straight away. <laughs> and now it's just um, what keeps her on Oprah, what keeps her on Conan or any other of the big talk shows, it will be she's she's the wife of uh, British royalty and her children are. As I was talking, I was thinking maybe if she have, has the kids, that's enough. But... I don't know. I don't know. I think I think there's still power, great, great power in that uh, token that Harry represents. How clever has Oprah been in monetizing all this? Oprah is a genius. I mean, <laughs> honestly, Oprah is from as 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 an actress, which I think she was originally was was an actress to where she's gotten to. Um, talking about not putting a foot wrong in terms of as a publisher, as a marketer, as an entertainer, I can't think of a time. Where she where she's put a foot wrong, and she's perfect for America. She's absolutely perfect for an American audience. You get on Oprah's book club as an author. Well, you you know you've <laughs> you've authored books. I mean, it's it's quids in. Um, yeah. She's so powerful. She's such a powerful woman in American culture. Yeah. So, do you think that the marriage will last then, Harry and Meghan? I do. I I think because because it's her choice and. Um, what I think she would fear the most is being average, is being a standard American girl, is being replaceable, is having to queue with everybody else. Mm. And as long as she's got him, they'll always be... I mean, it means something wherever you go in the world. It still means something. Any country you can name, the fact that you... Even if you give up your titles, and nobody believes that. <laughs> you know, oh, I used to be a prince. No, you're, you're a prince. <laughs> so there's nowhere in the world that she can go. If she has him, that shiny token, um, yeah, she'll, she, there's always going to be privilege and prestige wherever she goes, I think. So, yeah, I think it will last. All right, let's go over to the Epstein stuff then. <laughs> From one psycho <laughs> to another. <laughs> let's, let's set the table for this then. <laughs> Narcissism and psychopaths. Yeah. And you, so they can be 
Someone could be a narcissist. Someone could be a psychopath. Someone could be a narcissistic psychopath. Yeah. Could you just explain how all that works? Yeah, well, narcissism is a very interesting uh, diagnosis because, um, as with all in the DSM, it's put into there's cluster A, there's cluster B, there's cluster C. Cluster B, that B, they call the dramatic cluster, which is like psychiatric speak for a pain in the ass. You know, these are people who are confrontational. They're difficult. Um, they're criminally inclined. Narcissists are smart. They tend not to get caught. They tend not to go over uh, past that boundary. Psychopaths have a lower impulse control and care less about their image. They do cross that boundary. Um, and so the comorbidity effect means if you are given a diagnosis in that spectrum, psychopathy, narcissism, histrionic, and borderline, you probably have other issues as well. It's very rare that you just have somebody who's only given a diagnosis of, of narcissism. Um, it's usually it's usually in there with other things. But the particular manifestation that we're seeing now more commonly, as we progress along this cultural path, um, the alpha predators of, an, of a highly narcissistic environment have to be psychopathic narcissists. Because it's not enough to just be a narcissist anymore. Because <laughs> everybody's quite narcissistic. So, you know, it's back to the Meghan Markle thing. Like, how do you climb that dominance hierarchy? You've got to go a step further. And nowadays, you have to go several steps further. You have to be quite brazen with what you do. Otherwise, you're just a bog-standard narcissist, and it's it's kind of meaningless. All right, then. What, what um, in terms of Epstein and Maxwell, then, what are you diagnosing them as out of all of the disorders that exist? Um first of all i should say i'm not qualified to diagnose <laughs> and also you're not supposed to do secondhand diagnoses but if i if i was going to say what would based on what i've read and what i've seen in terms of behaviors for them i think you can definitely see uh narcissistic psychopathy our modern view of psychopathy is largely based on models that were built of american prisoners so our test most of our tests for psychopathy they're kind of culturally bound in American notions of, of criminality and, and impulse control issues. Um, and that's what I see with, with both of them. I think like not narcissistic, uh, in love with a false uh, image, extremely vain, um, very entitled, uh, extremely arrogant. You know, they don't think they're ever going to get caught. They think everybody around them is an idiot. The psychopathic element is the goal orientated intated elements of it they will do what it takes to get what they want and if anybody stands in their way they deal with them one way or another so i think you have that you have a, another folie à deux with two people coming together but they both have both of these uh, significant traits of both of these disorders working together so a narcissistic psychopath can cause a lot of damage mm. but when two narc psychs come together mm -hmm. Is it multiplied then, the effects? Yeah, yeah. It becomes, it's almost like, uh, um, you know, alcohol is a disinhibitor predominantly. So um, narcissistic psychopaths disinhibit each other when they're in communication, especially if there aren't any normies in the room. So if, you obviously you've got to moderate compared to who's around you and who's <laughs> going to get shocked because they are still narcissistic, so they do still care about their reputation. And I think that's true for both of these people. I don't think uh, maybe in narcissistic elation a couple of times, Jeffrey Epstein got a little overconfident, a little bit flagrant, but they cared because their reputation was part of the economy of the, the business that they were in. 
Um, so yeah, they disinhibited each other because they kind of normalized each other's evil for want of a better term. And so then you would, you can very quickly, it's like when you see an organized crime, you know, you see narcissistic psychopaths come together and they start competing to see who's the most evil or you get it in uh, with war crimes, soldiers. You, you have one psychopath in a unit, people keep him calm. You get a couple in a unit, they start dominating the rest of the unit and then they're competing with each other to see who does the most atrocities. And I think there was an escalating effect with those two because the, the, I just reviewed the material today and I was like, the, the, the scale and the organization and the sheer brazenness of what they did. I mean, you know, th these are people who either they don't have an imagination or they just thought they were so clever that they'd never get caught. Or if they got caught, they'd have so much clout and so much material on other people, they'd leverage their way out of anything. Because um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's extreme what they pushed each other to. In terms of um, Glenn's personality then, mm. have you looked at her life history at all? And do you have any, any factors that have come into play there? I think the father's a big, big factor. Um, you know, coming out of Czechoslovakia as he did, if, if people know their history of, of, of what the Nazis did in Czechoslovakia before Stalin and his boys went in there, it was brutal. Not only was it brutal, but they forced... Uh, uh, Czechs and Slovakians into the Nazi regime. They're like, you will produce uniforms. You, I, I only found this out recently. Most of uh, most Nazi weaponry, the guns, were being produced at the Skoda factories in the Czech Republic. And if you screwed around and you rebelled, uh, as they were British-backed resistance fighters, they would just pick a like they would go, let's kill five thousand civilians in response to that. So. Why am I saying this? This is before even communism hit. Before the horrors of Stalin and communism, you've got this, this, this the insane violent sadism of the Nazis, which it's impossible to overstate what the bloodlust that they had and the hatred they had for Czechoslovakians as Slavs. They saw them as genetically inferior. They, they, were, they were racists. They were real racists who saw them as genetically inferior Slavs who they might Germanize one day if they, if they behave themselves. So Robert Maxwell comes out of that. And these environments, whether it's Nazism or Stalinism, the totalitarianism produces these, these seamless, compassionless psychopaths. And it's like all of their moral qualms or, or empathy is just scrubbed clean and they're just this perfect, <laughs> impenetrable orb of evil. <laughs> and I think... Um, I can only imagine what it was to be like. Perfect, <laughs> impenetrable bob of evil. I, I that. love that. I Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I, I can only imagine for her the, the, the pressure she was under growing up trying to please this distant psychopathic man who only cared about digging up other people's dirt to enslave them and, and have power over them. And, and, and to, he was a player. He was a power player. Again, we're back with this beyond money. So this is, maybe it's a different economy here. You mentioned the prestige economy before your titles and land and everything. This is a pure power economy. You know, are you powerful enough that if you got locked up and you just killed five people and they had the bodies there in front of you, that it would all get scrubbed away? Because some people are. They can do that. They can have a wild weekend and kill some people and it just disappears from the records. So she would have been in that environment 
trying to win love from this this father figure who's distant and cold and very psychopathic and he's into just the murkiest elements of 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 human depravity to to mine that depravity for power so she learned she watched and she learned and she found jeffrey and he was perfect perfect person to to please because when i was looking through her history i was like is this real it's about money money's good power's good but i think she really wanted to to show that she could be of use uh, to epstein she had a lot of siblings what does it say to you that robert named his yacht after her much to the chagrin of the siblings i I'd, I'd say that she was winning i say that she showed she i mean what would a guy like that how would he think he'd be like you know you must fight with each other for dominance you must be the strongest of the of the litter he probably saw his children as animals as mini predators and would have had a very spartan view like you make it or you don't and she's she's shown promise she's shown that she can she can do it she would have internalized that because she would have only it's a little complicated but in that environment because you're not getting normal parental love you're getting admirate a sort of a narcissistic applause from the from the father figure or even maybe from both parents i don't know um that's what you addict to so you can't actually take love anymore you crave it as a human being. You want love and intimacy, but you it feels weird. You've never had it and you don't like it. So they become counter-dependent. They only want applause. So I, what I would say if he named the boat is, I wonder what she did for him to get that applause when she was young and as she was growing up. I wonder what traits he valued in her. I suspect they would have been the more predatory, narcissistic and psychopathic traits within her. Um, yeah. What do you think about John Sweeney's theory then that the literature that was found in the properties like um, Story of O, BDSM literature, mm. he's he's tracing that back to the corporal punishment that was handed out by Robert Maxwell, mm. whips and, and, and things like that. And there's another female commenter who talk, talks about like Galen was allowed to choose what belt or what whip she was going to get beat with and mm. this could have formed a BDSM streak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's it's a it's a difficult topic of conversation, but I think what I would say uh, to your viewers that would be instructive and useful is we all have to consider that childhood sexual abuse, incest, and paedophilia. It's sad to say it, but it's way more common than any of us want to admit. It's 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 absurdly common, and and it's different country to country and culture to culture, but it's. This is what humans do. It's just, I'm not, uh, that sounded like this is what humans do, so it's okay. It's a crime and it's it's punishable and it should be. But we shouldn't, it's wrong of us to clutch our pearls and go, oh my God, I can't believe that. When it happens so commonly, it is such a common, so uh, the question behind your question would be, do I think that he was sexually abusing her? And I would say, if he didn't, he at least would have, broken sexual boundaries because there's a there's a broad scale of sexual abuse it doesn't have to be physical sexual contact with a child it could be that you're speaking to a child about things that are sexual it's that you're addressing the child as a sexual object not as your child and um that's reflected in stories like that choose choose how you want to be beaten 
it's really gross, but I do I do know a little bit about the psychology. The psychology of an abuser would be because she's chosen the way she wants to be beaten, that means she enjoys that way. That's the wow. conclusion that they would come to. There's, um, I mean, the, the literature is hard, really hard to read around this, but it's common for paedophiles and people who abuse their children to justify what they're doing as, a, as just a different expression of love. Mm. And that you see that in the interviews when when they're being interviewed by the by the police and by psychologists, that's how they defend it. Some of them don't even defend it; they're defiant. They'll say, "No, it's it's perfectly valid what we did in my household. They're my children, and this is this is how I wanted to raise my children, and and that's and that's it. I've lived it firsthand, so I know I know the the psychology and the self justification that the abusers go through. So no, I think I think it's a perfectly a valid line of, of of investigation to look at and that would be my comment would be if he didn't actually sexually abuse her physically I imagine he broke her boundaries sexually uh, psychologically and emotionally so when she is procuring victims then for Epstein mm-hmm. is she therefore projecting things that could have happened to her or is she getting some kind of um, satisfaction from doing that because of what happened to her so there's there's two things that could be happening and may, maybe it's both there's um there would be like an ingrained trauma repetition compulsion where she's like i must please the dark father figure the dark demanding father figure and when i do and I give him the goals that he wants and he says, well done. It's like, oh, you know, because you're now, the mind is so fractured and, and the um, the trauma bonding is so deep. It's, it's from when she was a child. She would, she would get something from that. Another element that can operate at the same time, or it could be a different explanation is um, we can seek to recontrol that which formerly dominated us. This is the, the psychoanalytic view of Alfred Adler would be that if if she's doing it to somebody else, she sort of um, reappropriated that space and reappropriated that that process. So she's not a victim anymore because the shame and the guilt and the burden of being a victim is is painful. It's hard. But if I'm doing it to others, that means I'm not a victim. She's reenacting control. the situation, but she's in control. Yeah, right. Right. So she's reversed the power. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. Really, really common uh, response to long-term abuse is for people to become abusive as a means of mediating those feelings of, of insecurity and of inferiority. So there's all kinds of different theories about her behaviour. And one is that she was so in love with Epstein, mm. she just would do anything that he said. I like that, but it's, for, it's a little simplistic for my tastes. I don't know, because when somebody says... What we all do, the mistake we all make, like if you're a, basically a sane person, you try and judge somebody else's actions from your point of view. Oh, she loved him. She just loved him so much that she'd do <laughs> anything for him, even things involved, like criminal things involving innocent children. And I just think it. Pro- she's probably, um, she was. She's probably in another world that we can only try to imagine how she thinks and feels. And love as we know it is probably not part of that world. There is no intimacy. There is only dominance, submission, transaction, exploitation. And that's the world because that's what she was raised in. So any guy, I'm sure other guys had been in her life and tried to show her love and showed up with flowers and told she was beautiful. She would have hated that. 
should have hate and being like, ugh. But if a guy comes up and is like, hey, this is what you're going to do for me, and that makes me happy. Oh, oh God, yes, yes, absolutely. This is entrainment. It's it's conditioning. It's horrifying, but yeah, far more likely that that she's entrained into it than that she really that she could even be capable of 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 love as as the rest of us would understand it. So her family have established a website, The Real Ghislaine, and they're portraying her to be like an animal lover, conservationist. Just like Hitler. Trying to to save the oceans, Mm. that she's, you know, suffering these horrendous conditions. Um, Detractors are saying that she's playing the health card. This is a manipulation. You know, Mm. she had the black eye recently. Yep. Like the like the mafia guys used to get wheeled into the hospital with the oxygen masks on, mm-hmm. and then as soon as they got off the charges, you know <laughs> the, the health would suddenly bounce back. Um, what's your interpretation of the current events on both sides? I think f- for me personally, I am so sick of seeing people uh, try to greenwash their consciences away by by you know hashtag hashtag the environment or hashtag conservation. And, you know, I just think it's too easy. It's too cheap. It's too easy to do to do that and to say that you care about a particular uh, subject or a particular crusade and then to try and score points through doing that. Yeah, she may genuinely care about the environment. It doesn't detract from what she's done, though. It doesn't detract from her role as a as a procurer of girls for sexual exploitation based on the material I was reading, some of which was young as 14. That's a child. That's an absolutely a child who cannot consent. Um, and so, yeah, sure, save the oceans. That's, that's still Slinger in jail. <laughs> <laughs> There's much speculation as to whether she will go all the way and go to trial or mm. she'll sign a plea bargain at some point. Her legal team have been filing all kinds of motions and... Things seem to be going against her in the hearings with this particular judge. Mm. So her plea bargaining power has diminished since she got arrested, especially with the filing of the additional charges. Mm. So there comes a moment of truth right before you know when the real trial is going to happen, mm-hmm. whereby your lawyer says, look, if this all goes wrong, you're never going to get out. Mm. You could sign a plea bargain with a sentencing range of 10 to 20 years. Mm. Federal prison system will be out after 85%. Mm-hmm. At least you'll get some of your life back. Mm-hmm. Based on your analysis of her as a psychopathic narcissist, would that personality type be more likely to roll the dice and go all the way and take it to trial? Or would they be rational and say, look, I, I, I did these crimes... I'm going to have to accept my karma cheerfully, do my 10, 15 years, whatever it is, at least I'll get some life back. Or they're just going to be so arrogant as to say, F that, mm. it's all or nothing. I'm, going to, I'm either going to be free or I'm going to die in here. Which, which, which road do you think she's going to go down? Well, I think, I think what I would say, and, and um, when, the, when that moment comes, it would be interesting if you have another conversation because that actually will be the indicator of the insight as to how much of a narcissist or a psychopath she is. The narcissist in her would be smart enough and understand uh, the power of fawning. So there's like this thing called a fawn response. A psychopath is stuck in a fight response. So if she says, F you, I'm going to keep fighting this or I'm going to appeal and just waste everybody's time 
from inside of a jail with appeal after appeal after appeal, that's a psychopath. I think she's smarter than that. I think the narcissist takes over at that point and says, yeah, we had a good run, but I am going to have to sit inside of a, of a, of a prison for and a good number of years, as you as you said, is eighty five percent is it in in federal prison? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it's America. It's still a very religious country, and she has done things to kids. And there, there is. I know that it shouldn't work this way, but people are aware of what the American public will and won't accept. She she has to she has to go to prison for a good chunk of chi- time, or they'll never hear the end of it. So I, I I don't I think as you said I don't think there's any way she's going to plea bargain her way out of uh, of a custodial sentence. If she's smart, she'll she'll do as you've said and just say accept the cha- the karma cheerfully, do your time, you know, look forward to coming out and then and then leave it at that. If she is more of a psychopath, she'll yeah. go to trial. Mm-hmm. So you think she's going to capitulate and, and just take a plea bargain before, right before trial? Then? She should do. I think most I think people she's, do. Yeah, she's smart enough. I mean, um, and you just wouldn't. I, she, I, I've never, I've never been inside of it, but I've, I've read enough about it and seen enough. Of it. You just don't want to get stuck in the bowels of that beast uh, for any longer than you need to. And I think, I think it goes on record. If you're being reasonable and you, you cop for it. They they know like of course it's such a high profile case she'll never sit in front of a judge who doesn't know who she is mm. so they got you just stop wasting everybody's time and go to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what is your analysis of Prince Andrew's personality type, and why would a person with that personality type end up mm. in a co-conspiracy with Epstein and Maxwell? I think. Um, it's it's almost like a personality type that's that's perfectly built by the environment that he was raised in. There is a a chap called uh, Professor Philip Zimbardo. He's a Sicilian New Yorker, and he came up with the idea of the Lucifer effect to describe criminality. So I think with Prince Andrew, he's Andrew. He's a perfect representation of the environment and the cultural coordinates he was raised in. He just thinks he's entitled to it, in the same way that Prince Philip thought that he was entitled to it. You know, they they. They go whoring. They, you know, they sleep with women of the countries that they're visiting. It's just simply part of what a gentleman does. <laughs> and to then to then have a bunch of dirty proles calling you up on it, all this lumpen proletariat wanting to know, <laughs> how dare you <laughs> do whatever I do behind closed doors? Thank yeah. you. So I think we could see some of that sort of blustering arrogance. And he he made some terrible blunders, which people who are who are in the culture and au fait with the the modern media, you think, what are you, why did you do? <laughs> You've made it so much worse for yourself. But he's a perfect, I'm so glad that he's naive because it lets all of us see what that mentality really is, what that, how, how mind-numbingly arrogant and entitled they are, which are, like, why, would, why wouldn't they be? <laughs> you know, they're born into a huge amount of wealth and privilege. Do you see na- na- um, narcissism and psychopathy in his, or has he not got the intelligence? I, I think it. F- there is an argument. Um, I can't remember any of the researchers' names right now, but it's called um, the situational narcissism, and there's there's narcissism that comes from context. And you know, what, we, what do we see? Like Justin Bieber is a kid, and he raises up through the ranks really rapidly, and before you know it. 
He's snorting coke and getting drunk and taking a piss on a plant. And everybody's appalled. I mean, how could... And I'm like, do you know what I was doing when I was 21? <laughs> what you were doing when we were 21? We just didn't have the money and the celebrity to do it on that scale. Does he have a problem? No, he doesn't have a problem. The actual human being called Justin Bieber who sits on the couch and watches TV. But you give people that much power... And humans do what humans... It's very. It's a very rare person who goes, oh, no, no cocaine for me. I think I've had enough. And to show that level of of restraint, it takes uh, maturity. You've got to have... And you, in a sense, I think you've already got to have major mistakes in order to show that level of restraint. So in his case, um, he is functionally absolutely a narcissist and, and functionally absolutely a psychopath. But the, the approach... I've, whenever I think about him, the approach I always go is... And I'm not excusing him. It's not an excuse. But I, I just see him as the perfect embodiment of that environment. You know, that gentleman, nobility. Well, just, of course I did. I mean, the, why wouldn't I do? You know, and they, they can't understand that it's against the law or it's criminal or there's consequences or anything like that. That's for the lower classes to deal with. It's not for me to deal with. And uh, that, that's, the, that's the lens through which I view it. But absolutely, I mean, the man is sick. He's a sick man. So there were two major things that he did that just made the situation way worse for him. Mm. So as well as, you know, the the allegations against him that were horrible enough, he compounded everything, firstly, by being the guest of honour at Epstein's coming out of prison party, mm. against the advice of his advisors and, you mm. know, whoever gives him this information, tells him what to do at the, at the at, from Buckingham Palace, mm. he just went out there anyway mm. in a situation that was deteriorating with someone who's now convicted, so that's out in the public domain. Mm. Why would he do that? I'd love to know what his IQ is because mm. you, you, we have this vision of, of like narcissists and psychopaths. You say psychopaths and you think Hannibal Lecter, you know, some chap in a cell listening to classical music and dreaming of Florence or whatever. But, the reality is, as I said before, because the model of psychopathy is based on American prisoners, the average psychopath actually has is below average on the IQ scale. They're not thinking of the consequences of what they're doing. They're not. They, they'd lack impulse control. And I think it's more like low IQ psychopathy. I'll get away with this because because I'm me, damn you. How dare you question me? Um, he has made some sh some some strangely... It could just be arrogance, but it, with him, when I watch him in interviews, I'm thinking, you know, maybe breeding that closely isn't such a good idea over the generation. Well, that's, that's the next thing that he did that, that, that compounded it was the BBC interview. Right. What would possess him to do that? It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that there weren't that there wasn't an advisor or a handler that would step in and say, uh, "Please, sir, that's, that's just." have a conversation about this. And I wonder, I'm not on the inside track, so I don't know how it works within the royal household. Is there a greater authority than the royals themselves that would just tell you, no, you can't do that? Maybe there was at one time, but there clearly isn't now. There clearly isn't anybody who can veto you. If you, I'm doing that interview, where so, there should be somebody there who says, no, sir, you're not. You're absolutely not, but obviously it's what he wanted to do. And for some reason, I don't know, I, I can't even imagine what is what the reason, like, oh, I'll clear my name or 
I'll clear this up. No, no, you won't. Um, t- a terrible mistake. Terrible mistake. Possibly, some people are just a bit thick. They're, they're, so there's a bad combination. You have narcissism, psychopathy, arrogance, and stupidity. And these are the people who get caught. Don't you think, like, the royal family have such pull, they would have put something in the contract with the BBC, we need to see this before you release it and we've got ultimate, you know, veto over it. I, that's that's what we imagine as outsiders. And I think what's happened since, um, basically since the since we gave up the empire, since the end of World War Two, I think that the royals were very family, uh, very family, sorry, very um, embarrassed about their association with, with Hitler and the Nazis. Um, obviously... Most people have seen the picture of the Queen as she's a child throwing the Hitler salute um, because the the royals didn't... They were friends with the Russian royalty. They saw them get shot and stabbed to death by the Bolsheviks. So the great fear of Britain wasn't the Nazis. We weren't scared of Hitler. We were scared of Stalin. It was Churchill who, who, saw, who saw through that. So I think there was this big post-war anti-Nazi, anti-nationalist... Any sort of empire building or colonialism was no longer au fait, so they gave it up. And I think it's just been a deteriorating institution ever since, that every year that goes by loses its relevance and loses its power. And I think perhaps, uh, you know, in the 80s where you had, you know, Maggie Thatcher and Elizabeth going head to head, maybe that was the end. Maybe After that, maybe there was just no more real checks and balances, real resistance, a real sense of uh, controlling the brand. Who, because who's who's in charge? I mean, Elizabeth is, what, 90? She, she's, a, she's a very old lady. And, what, and I think once she goes, I don't think that there will be much of a royal family left after that. So you're saying that the fact that this interview made it to the screens mm. is symptomatic of the decline of the power of the royal family? Tremendous amount. I mean, she must have been watching that with her, you know, just just her heart sinking because she's done so much to hold it up for so long and she's given so much of her life to it, probably realistically knowing that it's doomed. Um, and, and World War II would have been a huge indication of that. It's just not, it's just not going to be part of the modern world, but trying desperately to reintegrate and remodernize and, and, and level up the brand. But yes, you're absolutely right. I think that was an indication of how deteriorated and decrepit the system actually is now. Looking at the language then that Prince Andrew used in that interview, mm. I mean, there's some whoppers in there, isn't there? Because mm. um, of modern technology, of course, everything he said that was bizarre, like I don't sweat, I don't go out in casual clothes in London, mm. instantly it was all getting put online on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Um, to lie like that, so in everybody's face? Yeah. What's going on upstairs? I'd n- I'd not really seen Prince Andrew much before that. He's not really been in the public eye, so I'm like, okay, what do I not know here, and what do I think this human being has been doing before I see him? And I would just say he looks like a guy who's used to having people around him who just say yes. He talks out of his bum, nonstop, and all of his mates and everybody around him just says yes sir, yes sir, yes sir, yes sir, and he's like, well, I'm going to do what I normally do. I'll just go and tell a few lies, and everybody will say yes sir, yes sir, and I'll go home. And he would have been appalled. I, I think I think the dude was genuinely shocked when people were like, "Hang on a second, mate, <laughs> this this doesn't make any sense." <laughs> and he was probably very shocked and very distressed by that. 
Do you think he's an anachronism then, and modern technology has just like shown the emperor with no clothes? I, I don't even. I, yeah, he's he's absolutely a, an an anachronism. I mean, he's not even been a particularly useful royal, so I don't know what he's been spending his days doing. <laughs> he's the trade ambassador, don't you know? Is he really? He was. Is he really? <laughs> when he was doing all this stuff with Epstein, he was there officially as the trade ambassador for the UK. Well, you would, you would hope. That he had some diplomacy and some <laughs> some skill and some charm. But then, as we said before about Harry, there is this tokenism. You know, you are who you are. You're a prince. Wow. Let me get you another glass of champagne, sir. And you hear that hundreds of thousands of times over your life. And maybe you just think, well, all I have to do is show up and everything will be okay. And because it always has, he thought, well, I'll just show up to the BBC interview. Everything will be okay. It always is. Oh dear, that didn't go very well, did it? <laughs> so if Charles like died in a car crash or something, mm. where would the crown go to his son? It wouldn't go to his, one of his brothers. No, it goes, uh, if Charles dies, it goes to William, I think. It goes to William, okay, yeah, thank yeah. goodness. It's yeah. <laughs> the only chance it's got now. <laughs> what about how cold uh, Andrew was then? Like He never, you know talked about the plight of the survivors mm. oh i'm just out there on you know we're having a straightforward shooting weekend and mm. he was just so blase as a, you know the survivors he, he could have gone on there and said look epstein was a horrible guy mm. he didn't he said he's a great guy at connecting people mm. people love to be around him and he didn't you know it's almost like he hadn't been and googled him first like <laughs> why don't you google the guy you're about to talk about because we're okay, what are you talking about, mate? It really just seemed like he'd been beamed in from another planet and wasn't aware that he like he was parachuted into a battle that had been going on for a while, and he acted like he was like, like he was showing up to play golf or so. I don't know how protected he is from from the information, but it seems to be a lot. So at Philip's funeral, he tried to parlay himself into an admiral. Did he really? Yeah, yeah, which he's not. And the Queen put her foot down and wouldn't allow him to do it. What? I mean, you just created the biggest scandal in the history of the royal family. And all of a sudden, you want to make a combat and promote yourself to an admiral? Oh, Mama, let me. Let me dress as an admiral. Now. Where does this delusional thinking come from? I just think, I think it's your life, isn't it? Like, how, how do you live your life? Um, and I don't know what I don't I can't see from the outside where the power is where the agency is in the royal like who's in charge is it just her because because if it's just her and he showed when he was very young that he was useless he wasn't going to be of use uh, diplomatically and we weren't going to be going out to the former colonies to keep everybody happy every year maybe he's just spent his life with fake roles like being the trade commissioner, <laughs> shooting and golfing, and his brain's just atrophied because there's no, <laughs> there's no pressure on him to do anything other than show up, eat, drink, fart, and leave. <laughs> and not sweat at any point. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, then. So... Have you ever looked at Jimmy Savile? We've got a, a big, long documentary about him coming out. Because we've got Epstein and Andrew, and we've got Savile and Charles. There seems like a lot of parallels here. Yeah. Have you, have you looked at Savile at all? I've, I've only looked at 
The, the thing with Savile that interested me, it wasn't so much what he was doing, and I actually don't know the full extent of, of what he was doing. I've heard some stories, but it was the, it was the way in which it was support, not supported, but indulged by the people around him. And I just think, because again, that's our, that's our era. I remember grow, I grew up with Jimmy Savile. Top being of the pops, top. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Jim will fix it and all that. And looking back, that's very anachronistic. What a weird guy. Like, you would never put some dude in his 40s with the glasses and the culture and have a kid sitting on his knee and with the cigar. You just think, he looks creepy. Yeah. It's really... But in the 80s, you're just like, yeah, it's Jimmy Savile. Yay! Don't, <laughs> don't think about it. Don't no, look no, at no, it. No, 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 no. Jim's going to fix it for you. I'm like, oh, I'm like, this is horrendous. What are we doing? Um, and so, but, but it's, it, it bothers me. And I've heard people of that generation, the baby boomer generation, talking about him and talking about Rolf Harris and their attitude is just different. Their attitude, that, that generation, that age is just different. I heard, uh, it was one of my mother's friends, uh, she was a, a tennis friend, she's quite posh. And it was, it was in relation to Savile and two 16 year old girls. And her, this is at the time she would have been 72, let's say she was. Well, those girls knew what they were doing. I'm like, mm, that's a grown man though. It's not like, it's not like they'd gone to a concert and they met a 19 year old pop star. That's a man. That's a, like, it's a fully grown man with children. And their attitude, well, her attitude, well, they knew what they were doing. I'm like, I'm not sure that they did, but it's, it's different, and I think as time has gone by, we've become more sensitive, we've become more empathic, we've become more compassionate, which is which is good, and we've become more psychologically aware. Everybody's like, you can't avoid it, you know. Even uh, you, you get like like the lads I was talking about before, quite rough, tough, hard guys. They still understand the value of counselling and emotional literacy and all the rest of it. Where twenty years ago, they would have been like, you know, no interest. So I think. The the interesting thing for me is the way the people around him either turned a blind eye or, or covered up for him. And we've, we've got serious questions to ask about the institutions that covered up for him as well. Especially the BBC. It's incredible. I mean, there's a clip of, of Top of the Pops on YouTube. Have you seen it? Yeah. Sal just puts his hand up a woman's skirt, a young, young you know, teenager's skirt, mm. and she jumps like he's grabbed her privates. Right, they're on camera, and they on it, Top of the did Pops, it, did it right and it was heard. Camera. Yeah. It was heard. I think, I, I mean, obviously the BBC is under scrutiny right now anyway. Uh, when we're talking about arrogance, privilege, and a, a sort of an intergenerational institution that can do whatever it wants, I think a lot of that is, is going to go. A lot of that is going to go for good and for bad, in my humble opinion. When that generation dies out. Uh, it's, when, when they die, which is really now, let's be realistic, it's going to be in the next 10 years. The world's going to change when they move, when they, because that generation, they keep their foot on things to the very, and they don't just say, right, it's finished. I'll go play golf. They hold on to power as long as they can, but they will die. And when they do, there won't be that top down pressure. I I don't believe. And, and uh, institutions like the BBC have had their day. As far, as far as I'm concerned, the BBC absolutely should be defunded. So, there's parallels with the Savile and Epstein thing then, because some of that old generation say that the Epstein victims were just child prostitutes. You know, mm. they were they were asking for it. Which they were, is they were asking horrendous. for it. They knew what they were doing. 
if they got paid, it's not a problem. And this is not, I've heard that from men and women. It's not like the women are like more compassionate and like, oh, that shouldn't, that's terrible, that poor. No, they knew what they were doing. They're in parties, they, they were up for it. They, and you just think, <laughs> for, for our generation, you're a bit like, that's the point of them being children though. You are impressionable. You want to be famous. You want to associate with the older people. You can't exploit that desire to be included and to be in a privileged position for sexual exchange. Like, we've got to draw a boundary as as a civilized, reasonable society. And yeah, you're right. It's it is. You do hear that that sort of mentality of like, well, they knew what they were doing, or as you say, they they knew what they wanted, or they were like it's legitimate for a 14 year old to exchange sexual favors for money and you sort of think do you not understand the law the whole point of the law being written that way is you can't consent at that age because you're too young do you think that technology and the attitudes then of these younger generations going down to the tiktok generation Mm. will prevent another savile from happening because the media was controlled, wasn't it, exclusively by the BBC and the tabloids back mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. But now if, if another Savile tried to arise, you know, it would be published somewhere online. Some, someone would see something, someone would take a picture or something. I think, I think it's the, the whole culture's gone the other way, totally the other way, where people would be absolutely terrified of even a single accusation. Even, not even terrified of somebody taking a picture of them doing something wrong because they wouldn't do something wrong now because of you don't even want that said about you it's a, it's it's the news travels so quickly reputation is so precious and it's so easy to mar now um and so yeah no i think i think it's it's absolutely there's no way a savile would you, you wouldn't you wouldn't ha- a, a a guy like savile the again narcissistic psychopath that he was would see the situation and say well that's not a strategy i can adopt i'll have to adopt another strategy and they would adapt and find another way of doing it so he had access to morgues mental patients prisoners is that going beyond psychopathy i i just don't even know how like who gave him access to mental patients and prisoners? I don't understand the justification. Because he raised so much money for all these different institutions. So he, so had, it, he had the keys to the door. So we're back to the greenwashing thing with Maxwell then. It, it, we can't be in a situation where we say somebody's protecting the environment or they're protecting mental health or they're doing charity work. So therefore, it's the absolution thing. Oh, green card, dude, just go where you like. We can't do that. It's because if you've got money, you just buy that access. You say, oh, yeah, I've got a foundation that, I don't know, stops kittens from being drowned. Oh, well, do what you like then, Richard. <laughs> you know, it's, we, it's not, it's so obvious. Um, but I, I, the reason I asked you is because I only found out recently that he had access to prisoners. Wasn't there a famous British serial killer that he was... Sutcliffe? Why would he even want to meet him? People think that he had a relationship before when Sutcliffe was out. Really? Yeah, there's all kinds of theories about him and Sutcliffe. Even that that um, there was some criminality between them. I have to, I have to say this. This is uh, this is this is my stupid naivety. Back in 2011, there's a woman I know who's a who's a counsellor who specialises in child abuse. She's from Liverpool. Really smart woman, and we were talking on Skype one day, and she told me. Uh, before it had all come out about Savile and the BBC and politicians, she says there's paedophile rings, there's police involved. And I was like, there's paedophiles, there's not rings. It's not organised. It can't. You can't be a celebrity and be hanging out with serial killers. You can't be a... Ce- 
And I, I, I denied it all. I was like, yeah, yeah, I hear you, but this is like crazy Scouse conspiracy theory time. And years later, I think it was about five years later, I was like, yeah, I'm really sorry. I had no idea. And she said it's even it's even worse than she thought. At the, the levels of organisation and how brazen, how bra- You just walk up, take a picture with a serial killer and then go back to doing kids' TV. I, what? It's so mind-numbing. But but maybe that's part of the strategy is it's so brazen. You're kind of shocked into saying and doing nothing because you're like, I don't even know where to begin to start pulling pulling this apart. Like, you can't do both. You can't have kids sitting on your knee and be... You shouldn't even be anywhere near a psychiatric institution or a prison, for God's sake. I mean, that's just not... Those two worlds can never um, be, be even be seen to be in contact with each other. So he's got allegations of being a necro. What psychological disorder would that belong to? You would you would need to look at um, the 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 ch- the type of childhood trauma that's being experienced. I think people who who because f- for necrophilia, you've gone to what is the most extreme of human degradation I can find, and if he and if. I, I've never heard that before, but if that was one of his appetites, that was one of his tastes, then he's probably on the spectrum for just breaking boundaries for their own sake. If it's wrong, then well, I want to do well, it. Let me run these two things by you then. When he was a baby, hmm. he had a dis, um, an illness that almost killed him and his eyes hmm. wouldn't close. And the fact that he survived this illness mm. made his family treat him as the miracle child because okay. he shouldn't have survived. Mm-hmm. And then as a young person, he worked in the morgue. Mm. And then now, you know, the the allegations of the, the necro, do you see any of those factors in his life, the, the, the miracle child and the work in the morgues? Yeah. Is that... What, what's, they, what's your interpretation of that? That would that would have been if he if he was interested in necrophilia, that would have been so the time that he became these narratives are to create somebody who really has narcissistic personality disorder, not just culturally induced narcissism, but real narcissistic personality disorder. You need quite extreme, immersive experiences from childhood. So. Um, being told that you should have died, but you survived because you're a special guy, perfect for narcissistic personality disorder. You would also need to layer some kind of dehumanizing abuse onto that as well, though. So if he's being told you're a wonderkind and you're this amazing child who survived and you're still going to be sexually abused and you're still going to be hit and you're still going to be humiliated in the family unit, that's what it would, that's what it would take. Um, but yeah, early childhood experiences are... A sort of um, a breeding ground for fetishes and 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 desires and appetites growing up. R- remembering that fetish uh, isn't necessarily sexual. Uh, fetish to fetishize something just means you imbue an object with a property that it doesn't intrinsically have. So dead bodies are not intrinsically sexy, but if you are damaged and traumatized, you will fetishize. The handling, I don't maybe it made him feel a certain way, like powerful or godlike. You know, he's 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 handling a, a human body. I mean, it's a, like I said, it's very taboo. It's boundary breaking to do that. The person is as helpless as a human being can be. So I don't know how it made him feel, but it seems like he would have had uh, a proclivity towards power, as most paedophiles do. It's at the point of the experience is that you hold all the power. 
This is extremely rare then, because the only other times I've heard of it is in case of serial killers, I think Ted Bundy, Mm -hmm. whereby they came back and revisited the corpses and Mm -hmm. performed certain acts, let's just say, on Mm -hmm. those corpses. Mm -hmm. Is this really rare, this? this The the necro and and, and narco crossover. As far as I know, um, I don't know that much about, about serial killers, but as far as what I've the the reading around it it would be narcissism where the person has actually gone right the way through to a god complex and they have such a a superiority complex they are literally interpreting themselves as a god on earth um which when you look at the way serial killers commonly behave when they're caught how they speak to judges in in the court how they act in prisons it makes things make an awful lot of sense because they fundamentally see themselves as more than human and human laws don't really apply to them, so it's all a bit of a joke anyway. Um, and what would what there are certain experiences that make one godlike uh, dead bodies and defiling the dead bodies and taking the trophies from dead bodies would be uh, would be one of those things. So if you've got a close relationship with the Prime Minister Thatcher, Prince Charles the heads of the police in your area. He did like a, a, a weekly dinner for the police. Mm. All that's, that, that's not good. Is all that going to make him godlike then? It it would all be, it would be an Epstein uh, style effort to get his tentacles in as far as much as he could. If he was doing that with the police, I, it, it would be amazing to me, given that what I do know of him, that he wasn't, uh, breaking boundaries with some of the police that he thought he could break boundaries with, possibly even sharing images or case studies. Or put, I know in, it can happen uh, that paedophiles share each other's history, don't they, as a form of, of pornography. They can trade mm. the, the history of what they've done as pornography. So I, I would, you know, without wanting to read too much into the situation, based on what I know, he was probably doing that to get access to the police for that purpose. Well, whenever an allegation came in about him across the country, mm-hmm. it had to be reported to his jurisdiction right. where he had the weekly dinner for the police. And there was one police person in charge of those incoming calls. Mm-hmm. And him and Jimmy were like that. And all all those allegations never saw the light of day in, in that jurisdiction then. Who when, knows Who knows what him and Jimmy got up to? Who knows what compromising material would have been collected? Um, we know now that this is what they do in these in these secret societies in these paedophile rings so that I can't grasp on you, you can't grasp on me, we have compromising material of each other. So yeah, it's uh, it's highly likely that that's, that was the whole point of, of, of trying to get closer to the police was just to do that, was just to bind them in uh, to that. And we know, don't we, where there's been stings on paedophile rings, there's a disturbingly high number of people in positions of authority who are paedophiles, like policemen, like judges, like local councillors and politicians. It's... Um, and if people watching this want to watch more about that, we recently had Andrew Lowney on, who was talking about the VIP paedophile ring that supplied Lord Mountbatten, including sourcing kids from King Cora in Ireland. And that true crime podcast is called Prince Charles's Mentor, Lord Mountbatten. All right, then. So let's let's move away from Savile then and go over to Jordan Peterson who I've recently been watching. Mm. What attracted you to him? Well, it was his beautiful speaking voice mainly. <laughs> um, I, 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 uh, well, 
I started watching his lectures a long time ago when they came out on YouTube. I think it was like 2015. Um, and I think I just liked the psychoanalytic stuff he did about old Bible stories and he would weave bits of Jungian mythology in there. And I enjoyed all that. Um, and then as the years went by, it sort of morphed into he became the a mouthpiece or or one of the people who was speaking against this movement towards the woke culture. And uh, so his, he went from being somebody who I found interesting and was interested to listen to, not that I agreed with everything that he was saying, to sort of a real respect for him as somebody who had the courage to say what he was saying in the conditions that we were living through, um, where you know, the consequences could be really, really bad. And they were for him. The, the consequences for him, for him were really, really difficult um, because we are kind of going through a soft uh, cultural revolution at the moment. What is your definition of woke culture? Well, I think it's a, it's a poisonous combination of radical leftism, very poorly understood Marxism, like, like, undigested marxism resentment uh ressentiment in the nietzschean sense uh hatred of power hatred of the rich um and a kind of obsession with uh with safety uh, there's a book called the coddling of the american mind and the the author of that book i think it's jonathan height uh coins the term safetyism we're becoming anti-tough we're becoming very very fragile generally speaking so you put all these elements together plus you have like an exploding student population of way too many graduates now with useless degrees um who were indoctrinated into this nonsense and before you know it you've got like this generation that's become an army of useless saints who who are there who are here to save us all from i don't know the oppressive patriarchy or whatever babbling buzzwords they use. <laughs> <laughs> is this a repetition of the cycle of the younger generation always rocking the boat with the older generation there's uh yes and no this isn't gangster rap this isn't punk uh for our generation it would have been the rave scene and prodigy and maybe industrial metal and uh carl cox and all that and drum and bass but that was that was where you Every generation that did that through rock and roll and, and to, all the way through to jazz, it was we're young, we're virile, we're sexual, and we're going to do what we're going to do. And there's always an undertone of like um, uh, sort of a resilient red-blooded rebellion there. Uh, this is not that. This is a rebellion of the weak. This is like, uh, it's, it's to, to me, I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's a death cult because it's anti-life. What it says is, if you exist, which you do, you're guilty of crimes that you can never absolve. And it's, you know, like if you're white, that's a terrible crime. What, what, can, I, what can I do? Nothing. So I just be white and guilty for the, yes, forever. Damn, that's, you know, you're a man. Okay, can I do anything about that? No, you'll be a man. And, and it, but it's, it's for everybody. And it's like every single left-wing 
cultural revolution, it becomes a snake eating its own tail. This happens to Khmer Rouge. It happened in Maoist China. It happened under Stalin. And it will happen with these people. It starts attacking everyone, even their own allies, because you can never be woke enough. So everybody's guilty of some crime at some point. And uh, it seems like the whole purpose of the thing is to make people feel bad for existing. And that's that's not a philosophy. That's an anti-philosophy. It's a death cult. So how did Jordan Peterson bump heads with these people? Well, he's... Um, I just started a sentence with, well, I sound just like him. Well, the thing <laughs> is, um, he's obviously... He's a, he's a professor. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard. Um, and he's a lifelong academic. So he would have seen the worst, most extreme elements of this because they re- it really is a sort of a mind, a parasitic mind virus that's flourished in the academic institutions. Parasitic mind virus. So he, <laughs> almost as good as the orb of evil. <laughs> the, the impenetrable orb of, of evil. gleaming evil. Um, yeah, the, this, this is a parasitic mind virus. Gad, Gad Saad just wrote a book uh, uh, about that called The Parasitic Mind, which I recommend. So where he started to bump up against it was where the typical... I mean, I was a radical leftist when I was a student. Loads of people are Marxist when they're young because you don't have anything. You look at the world, you're young and idealistic, you're predominant, you think the you think the most important thing in life is fairness. And then you go old you get older, sadly. Uh, I tried not to, it didn't work. And you're like, maybe the most important thing in life isn't fairness because life isn't fair. We should try to be fair, we should try to be just, but you can't force fairness on people it's unnatural if things are left to their own devices the jungle is a very unfair place the desert's a very unfair place we as humans who are civilized we should try but it it can't be the ultimate value of a society to be fair so you grow out of it and i think what what's happened is it was always fringe it was always like a, a fringe thing so when I was a kid, I was obsessed with sexism and racism and, and the way in which the patriarchy had done this, that, and the other thing. And then you grow up and you think, well, actually, the patriarchy's also given me my iPhone and my trainers and my medical system. And I, you can't view everything through a political lens. It doesn't work. It becomes um, disintegrative, which is the essence of the postmodern movement. It's based on social constructionism and it deconstructs everything. Great. Well done. You've deconstructed everything. Now what? Now we're supposed to live in a communist utopia? Well, you know that that doesn't work because if you put people in a situation where everybody is equal, the first thing that humans do is try to establish a dominance hierarchy. You're all going to eat at the same time. You're all going to go to bed at the same time. None of you have any possessions. How long does it take for men in that environment to create a dominance hierarchy? They'll do it before they've even walked through the fucking door because they're checking each other out to see who's in the dominance hierarchy. So it, it just doesn't work. So I think Jordan Peterson ran afoul of a, just a, a growing movement. And I think it was just time. It was just that moment in human history uh, where things became very, very confrontational for him. How did that manifest in the public domain? The, the thing that he's known for famously is for um, pushing back against the Canadian Bill C-16 that meant if you misgendered somebody publicly, it would be uh, designated under Canadian law as a hate crime and you could get a custodial sentence for it. That was his interpretation. I've read around it from Canadian legal experts and they said that's actually untrue. Nobody was ever going to go to jail, but it was going to be considered a hate crime and he didn't like that. 
So you're saying this has gone beyond youthful idealism oh, into changing the laws. It's changing the laws and it's in our corporations. Coca-Cola is woke. Your local bank is woke. Um, I, I mentioned Douglas Murray to you before. He was a friend of Jordan Peterson's and he is a, a gay man. And he says, I don't want my bank to do a month of gay pride. I want them to reduce my interest rates and keep the queues short. <laughs> like, stop with the, it's just, it's just shallow virtue signaling. What I've been saying to young people is if a corporation is backing your cultural revolution, it probably isn't a real revolution. If a corporation is, is funding your Marxist revolution, it probably isn't a real Marxist revolution. So a corporation wants to maximize its profits. Yeah. So attitudes have changed so much or are transforming so much that they believe, because they've done an analysis on this, that by incorporating this, they're going to make more money. Mm-hmm. And they're which, right. Which perpetuates it. A hundred percent. And then it becomes even more, if it becomes self-fulfilling, they make even more money because even yes. more people jump on. And Yes. It's, it's, like an, it's like a revolution. It's an anti-revolution. These kids don't realize that the real revolution that's going on right now, especially if I can, if I can raise the, the pandemic, is the huge transfer of wealth from down to up. It's destroying the middle classes. And by pushing for this particular woke revolution, which is, it's beyond political correctness. It's beyond polite. Of course, we should be polite. Of, of course, we should respect people. And if somebody said to me, I'd prefer it if you address me as her instead of he, what, what difference does it make? You're a nice person. I like you. Sure. If that makes you feel comfortable, why wouldn't I? There's a difference between politely requesting and saying, if you don't do this, there'll be terrible consequences. <laughs> you can end up in jail or, or beaten up, as some people have been. So every movement has within it the genesis of an anti-movement. Yes. Have we seen that with this woke? Yeah, I think, I, think, um, I think that's actually a really profound statement you just made. There is always yin and yang. There's always yang inside of yin. So yes, there is um, an anti-movement uh, within the movement. And... I think where you see, I mean, the rise of Jordan Peterson was meteoric because as this became more popular, a lot of people who were in what Douglas Murray has referred to as the silent majority were recoiling in horror, but we did it silently because, well, what do you, what do you, I'm not crazy. I'm not going to run around the streets banging pots and pans. So I was like, I don't really know what to do with this, but I can get behind a Jordan Peterson, I can get behind a Douglas, I can get behind the public intellectual that says, hey, you know, maybe this is not a great, as great an idea as we all seem to think it is. <laughs> so um, I think I think that accounts for, I mean, his cultural relevance right now. So in the, uh, within the younger generation then, mm. is the anti-movement looking up to people like Jordan? Is he like the kingpin of, of the intellectual? I think so. I think, I, I mean, I think he certainly, he certainly has been, um, he got he got very sick and he disappeared from the scene for for about a year, um, but he certainly has been. And there is w- what you can see now in younger Gen Z is a move away from uh, wokeism, but it's so powerful. I think like a lot of people sat at home, if they're not involved in education, they're not in a corporation, and they're not involved in a university, they won't realize how very very strong it is. It's it's got real power behind it now. And what's Nietzsche's role in this? I, I read a few Nietzsche books in prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the uh, it's it's um, there's the Nietzsche's concept of ressentiment, which is pardon my French. It's where it's resentment, but you identify a target and you say this is all their fault. 
Which, if it doesn't make you think of the Nazis and the Jews, I don't know what will. It's got that. It's not just Stalinist. There's national socialist echoes in this as well. And it is Nietzsche's slave morality writ large. It's the opposite of the master morality. It's, um, it's the prevalence of the weak who have reconstructed a story because they're in a weak position of power in, in culture and in society. They say, well, we are weak. We don't have the wealth. We don't have the power, but we're morally superior, which makes this actually, uh, many people have made this point, it's actually got like a religious element to the movement. It's like a new spirituality, a new orthodoxy, a new fundamentalism, inclusive of inquisitions and witch burnings. So you did a video about Jordan Peterson. What did you say in that video? Um, yeah, it did really, really well. I, I basically said that I didn't, I had my problems with Jordan Peterson because he said some things that were technically inaccurate about Marxism and postmodernism. But the, what was, when I put aside the sort of the petty uh, differences around the glossary of terms and was like, well, what's the direction of what he's saying? it is more in line with Nietzsche and Jungian values of having a philosophy that allows you to deal with life. We exist. We can apologize for existing if you like. It's not going to do you any effing good. You are alive. You have one life and that's it. You didn't, you didn't ask for it, but here we are. And that what we should try to do is then to maximize the time we have with some kind of purpose and some kind of a mission. It, what he says is fundamentally it's very, very simple. You know, find a mission, find a purpose, live that purpose, try to extract some meaning from life. And that's about it. I think what we have at the opposite end of the scale is very boundaried and very um, moderate in his expectations for what people can have from life. At the other end of the scale with the woke movement, I think you have an unboundaried view of what life can give you. And you have a lot of people who are very upset that they're not living their perfect lives because somebody somewhere, some evil person told them they would and everything would be perfect and they're very angry about it. So like a malignant utopianism has spread. and They're furious that the rest of us are stopping them from living in their heavenly kingdom where they will be the new rulers. And we talked about that intergenerational attitude between, you know, child prostitutes versus victims of human mm. trafficking and modern-day slavery then. Our professors... Is <laughs> our professors getting like kicked out of academia because of this intergenerational thing with woke? Um, I, I think professors, largely speaking, are, are the ones who have profited the most. I mean, my, um, I'm not, I'm not really angry with the kids for doing this because it's easy to trick kids with utopianism and social justice ideologies. It's the professors who have done this, some cynically and deliberately. I've, I've actually sat. We're in lectures with Slavoj Žižek and other professors at Birkbeck University where they were, not Slavoj Žižek, but the other professors were trying to incite these kids to violence, violent revolution. And I was looking at them going, what the hell do you people know about violence? You, you, you know, look at you, fat slobs. It's all very well you sat there telling these kids to go out and be the vanguard for your revolution. Where will you be? You won't be on the front lines, will you? And um, so so I, for me, my my irritation my anger is is with those professors who have either done it deliberately or just recklessly they're frustrated they're stuck in university 
the book that they published didn't do as well as they hoped or the paper they published didn't do they're not getting the recognition that they should have done it's like fragile narcissism i'm a genius and nobody recognizes me i will boohoo right fine let's tear the whole system down are you going to tear it down no i'll just infect these kids with an ideology and send them off like lemmings <laughs> if nietzsche was alive today what do you think he would think of his words being used in rap music like that what does not kill us makes us stronger <laughs> um, he'd, he'd probably he'd probably be up for it i imagine like if because uh, he was into dancing and he was into music i think we've got a view looking back of him as like this very stern walrus mustache dude who's very unsmiling but he was a big fan of 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 joy of happiness dancing and being alive and he didn't like um anything that encouraged people to be anemic and shy and meek, which is why he had so much criticism of, of Christianity. So I think if he heard some some rap music that was quoting him, I think he would think it bumped. Towards his, the end of his days, didn't a maid walk in a room and he was naked doing Shakti dancing or something after? <laughs> I've not heard that. <laughs> I hope it's true, studying though. Studying the Hindu religion. <laughs> I hope it's true. God, I hope that's true. <laughs> and then he hugged the horse and it was all over. And that was done. The horse Hug yeah. was <laughs> Should have left that horse alone, Nietzsche. <laughs> so, what's Douglas Murray's role in all this? Douglas Murray is uh, he's a he's he's actually Scottish. He's f- uh, an Etonian who then went to Oxford. He's he's written a number of really uh, great books. I think he produced. He's one of these awful people who wrote like an amazing intellectual book at the age of sixteen or something horrible like that. People like him exist to make the rest of us just feel like <laughs> shit. Um, he's a really, really bright guy, funny guy. Um, opposite side of the political spectrum to me, he's, he is a conservative. Um, but he speaks so eloquently and so courageously about the the ill effects of this woke culture, um, which really it gets into... It gets into everything, people's attitude to life, the way they try to meet people. I'm talking to young people all the time now, and they're scared of dating. They're scared of asking girls out. Girls are scared of talking to guys, and it, it's really damaged our uh, interhuman relationships. We're not robust. We're not. We think everything is dangerous. We think everything is going to have some awful consequence. We're going to be called out and cancelled at any moment. There's no fun for these kids. There's no. There's no chance for them to just live and, and just live a normal life and one of the things that uh, Douglas recommends when he's when he's talking particularly to young people and I agree with it 100% is don't wait for there to be a better time just live your life now that just take the risk do the thing get on with it living your life because as I said before this woke thing has become a death cult to the extent it's anti-life it's anti-health it's anti-virulence it's like you know do, do we want to go out and live and be humans, or are we just ashamed and think we're a terrible mistake and should go back into the void? That's what, I, and I think that's why I say the, the the path of woke really is to gulags and genocide because it's an anti-human movement. And Nietzsche said, "Live your life like a work of art. Look at how much people effort people put into works of art. Mm. If you put that much effort into your life, how it, how the quality would improve." Hundred percent. All right. So this you kind of describe like an effeminization. Mm-hmm. Isn't that symptomatic then of the decline of every empire? There's a phase of effeminization. Uh, the only the only other person I've heard say that apart from you is is Douglas Murray. There's an, apparently there's 
uh, he, he didn't describe it as feminization. He said there's, um, uh, what do you call it? An androgyny, a sort of a meeting in the middle. And there's this, there becomes an obsession with, um, what is it called? I'm going to say Aphrodite. Her, hermaphrod, hermaphroditism. Hermaphrodite is Hermes and Aphrodite being forced together as a as a punishment. It was one of the punishments of the gods. So you had Hermes, who's very he's he's also Thoth, very very virile. He's a messenger. He transgresses boundaries. Aphrodite, goddess of love, and um, she did something awful. I think it was a sexual assault, and her punishment was to be literally in a codependent fusion. Much like Harry and Meghan. Um, <laughs> so that there would be like one person. Don't know why Hermes got punished for her mistake. And so then you had Hermaphrodite. And so there is this obsession with meeting in the middle, which hey, it's valuable. You know, look at David Bowie, who was androgynous and, and he played with his roles. Loads of musicians and artists have. It's a good thing. We should have a bit of social construct fluidity. That's healthy. You should have chaos and you should have order. We need it to stay sane in this crazy world. But when we become rigidly obsessed with meeting in the middle and that that's the only valid thing to do. So androgyny is the only way to be inoffensive and free from any crimes. What happens to polarity? Men can't be men and women can't be women. That's criminalized now. And operating from a polarized end of the spectrum is now not au fait. It's not trendy. So women, I have a ma majority women uh, following, like 85% of my following is women, constantly complaining that there's no men. There's no men left. And I'm like, well, all the men have been called out and the ones who are left are, are terrified that they're going to do something or say something that's going to get them into a terrible amount of trouble. The effects of that, testosterone levels are declining. People are set at home consuming more porn and wanking more, and they're just not having as much sex. Even young people are not; they're not dating as much. They're not. They're not. They're not even bothering. The research I read recently from the coddling of the American mind was they're not even bothering to get their driving license. Do you remember when we were growing up? You wanted that driving license. Yeah. You wanted to be the one who could drive your mate somewhere. You need to get to my girlfriend's house in Newton Lee Willows. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Let me get in that car so I can get laid. I mean, and, and there was nothing. Just think how quickly that's that's gone. So, yeah, they don't bother. They don't want to leave home. We, we all wanted to leave home. Why? So we could party without being told off. You could. You wanted that freedom. You wanted to go and travel and be in the world. But now they're indoctrinated into another mindset. The world isn't safe. It's dangerous out there. You know, there's so many things that could go wrong. You're safer at home. Stay at home. And so, uh, yeah, testosterone levels are plummeting. Uh, uh, sexual relationships are plummeting. And people are really struggling to stay in that masculine feminine polarity because it's kind of criminalized now. But yes, it is the sign of a declining. Well, following society. up then on, what, on that, Adam Smith, I think he said that a hungry nation will have like a warrior spirit mm -hmm. and it will see all these other more opulent nations and it will it'll get to a point where that warrior spirit will rise up and then they will conquer the opulent nation. Mm -hmm. But then as they get fat on the spoils, mm -hmm. they become the opulent nation mm -hmm. and then they fall into traits that they, they lose their warrior spirit mm -hmm. and they go into decadence and all this yeah. other stuff and and the cycle just repeats and repeats all over the world yeah, men yeah. And, yeah, so, so does that does that mean the west <laughs> the west um the the more hungrier countries 
are looking at us, perhaps. And oh, yeah, they're called China, <laughs> Iran, and Russia, and they are greedily licking their lips. There's a, there's a, a meme that's gone viral on TikTok. I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards, which is it shows you a Russian military um, recruitment advert, and, then, and that's 30 seconds, and then it plays an American military recruitment a- advert right afterwards. The Russian military advert... It's black and white. There's a man's voice over the top. I don't speak Russian, but it sounds like he's saying, join the army today and go out into the world and be a real man and do the, you know, parachute behind enemy lines and they're shooting and all the rest of it. And it looks like a video game. Beautiful, well-produced, intense music, ultra-masculine. American military recruitment video is so woke, it's unwatchable. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cartoon of a girl saying about how she chose to join the military uh, and because she grew up in a, uh, both of her mothers married, she was raised by lesbians oh and she's transgender and, and that's their recruitment video. I don't know if you saw the CIA woke video. It's the same thing. They're using CIA recruitment videos that use woke terminology. I read something that said that the, for the first time in recent years, there's been, um, not enough men mm. of physicality, mm that qualifies for the military in America, so they've had to drop the standards to get more people. And a couple of years ago, I was in Turkey, and I was at the airport. Mm. So I'm in the line with the Brits coming home, mm. and the next line over was the Russians. Mm. And I looked over at the Russians. Mm-hmm. I looked over at the Brits. And those guys were like, they all looked like soldiers. They were mm-hmm. in such good shape. Mm-hmm. Let's just say I looked at the Brits they look a, a little bit out of shape. A little bit chubbier. <laughs> Kebabs and beers does um, something different to a man's so th- body. <laughs> so there's definitely, you know, that, if, if you go back hundreds of years, mm. that line of people could easily have conquered this line of people. Oh, yeah. But doesn't mutually assured destruction now prevent that from happening? I'm, I'm not sure that we shouldn't be considering... Um, the state of our nation and the state of the physicality of the people in our nation because, yes, mutually assured destruction is a thing, but there are multiple levels of conflict and force that can be used now. And you do have proxy wars that get fought. So if it was all-out war, yes, it would be fought by machines that were being run by fat British men who don't have to worry about the fact they can't do a push-up because they're just wearing virtual reality goggles and, and clicking a mouse. Most likely, most of it would be settled that way if it was all out war. Um, but there are still, there are still other areas. I mean, if if it had, if it had popped off in the Ukraine, which it nearly did, and we definitely would have backed Ukraine uh, because Boris has just signed his uh, trade agreement with them just last November gone. Um, that couldn't have been all out war. We couldn't have nuked. I mean, there's, there's just no way. So that would have been a, a physical confrontation. So. I think realistically, it doesn't really matter what the general population is like, but you are our future wars. If I was preparing for our future wars, and I think there's evidence of this, there'll be a big focus, not just on tech, but on special forces, special forces units. As long as you can still muster, you know, five to 600 men of a, of a, of a good cap, but they will be the most exceptional uh, that you see. But no, your point about about Russian cues and English cues as well. Too. <laughs> <laughs> They've all got the shaved heads as well. Yeah, they? yeah, and they, yeah. they talk and, and stand like men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas our lot, yeah. it's like... Maybe <laughs> 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 a little less. <laughs> British armies. Best small army in the world, still. <laughs> all right, let's um, move over to Michael Jackson then. Yeah. So in our previous video... 
I said that I was on the fence. Mm. You know, half the world thinks he is a predator and, and did yeah. those things with the boys. Yeah. Over half the world still loves his music, and they're all these. Yeah. You see these sides battling it yeah, out yeah. constantly. Since I last spoke to you, mm. I I met someone who worked with um, Jackson's team, mm. and that person said hundred percent he was. So, what's what's your analysis of him, and? You know what? What caused him to behave in the way you suspect he behaved? Yeah, um, it it's it's a tough one. I I still have a lot of sympathy for people who are just purely Team Michael Jackson. And I was just, I can't remember what I was listening to. Oh, uh, that Rock with You song. Um, I wanna rock. I don't even know if it's Michael Jackson. It might be the whole family that sings it. But there's so many classics that just totally change the face of music, and you just think, ugh, it's it's awful. It's awful to know what went on behind that. But we should divide the two. He's an amazing artist, an amazing musician. It doesn't impact that. The What I think did it for him was the was the abuse in, in his childhood home. I mean, you can plot the course. He was the special one of, of all of them. He was the one where the pressure went to. He was the one, therefore, because he was so talented. He so got, he was the miracle child. He was the miracle child. He was the wonderkind. And he was targeted for special punishment because of that by his father, who by all accounts was a violent, evil man who did terrible things. What uh, kind of punishments did he give, Michael? Uh, One of the regular ones, or not regular, there was a certain age that Michael was at, and it stuck with me, was he would be picked up by his ankle. So he was still being a very small boy and beaten... Um, on across across the buttocks with a belt, um, and then he would be punched all over his body. Remember that, like, if he's young enough to be picked up by an ankle, he can't have been much over the age of nine. Oh, yeah. So, and his father would would hit him in the face and say, "You are an ugly little big nosed n word," over and over and over again. What does Michael do as soon as he has the money to do it? He starts bleaching his skin and he trims his nose, not once, but like multiple times, trying to deal with the the trauma. Like, because for a child, he would have internalized that as, oh, I'm being beaten because I'm because I'm black. My father hate which is which is not logical, but that's what his father was saying to him. He hates me because I have a big nose and he hates me because I'm black. Let me not be that. With with intense childhood trauma like this is a useful um, psychiatric term where they say good object, bad object. Psychiatry uses these terrible narcissistic terms. But we are the subject as a child and we start to perceive ourselves through the eyes of the parent as an object, which is either lovable, which would be a good object, or unlovable and hateful, which is a bad object. Michael internalized bad object. He was bad the only love he got was literal applause on stage and he was guaranteed to become a narcissist. I mean, it turned him into a narcissistic psychopath. His father was telling him he was worthless and an ugly, big-nosed, so on. But the the audience, the producers, the fans were telling him he was something wonderful and it just broke his mind, completely broke his mind. So anyone who builds like a fur ground um, theme park for kids mm-hmm. and is sleeping with kids... Mm-hmm. Would probably be arrested, but Michael always got a pass. Well, I, I, what the way I've framed it is I've said, okay, I'll go around some black communities in America. I'll go to Crenshaw 
as a white man who's not famous, who you don't know, and be like, can I hang out with, with your with your kids? Why why do you want to do that? Because I'm lonely. <laughs> I'd have to flee, I think, <laughs> fairly yeah. quickly. But because he was famous and because he had the kind of fame and money, in the 80s, you could still be a real god. I mean, you can't be famous like they were famous. It's not. It's We're not so naive now. But he was their king of pop. He was a real god. Um, and yeah, parents handed over their kids to him. They must have had some doubts. I mean... Why are you handing your boy over to a 35-year-old man is lonely, so you let him take your children plus other children to his mansion, gated mansion, and inside that mansion is, uh, uh, what do you call the spinning, the horse carousel? It's a carousel. There's dolls everywhere. Mannequin. Have you seen the pictures inside his house? Life-size mannequins in fancy dress. It was creepy as fuck. Yeah, yeah, go stay the night there. What did you do? We watched some movies. Anything else? Mm-mm. You sure? Yep. Just watched some movies because of he was grooming them. He was showing them pornography. He was having them masturbate in front of him. Looking at the Lost Prophets case then, who had nowhere near the fame of Michael Jackson, mm. he had super fans that were knowingly offering up their kids to him, knowing what was going to happen. And there were discussions of babies mm. were going to be handed over, mm-hmm. their own babies. Mm-hmm. Is this fame thing so powerful that people just lose rational thought? and Or are those people sick individuals to begin with that would hand over their own kids? Or is it a combination of both? I don't, I don't know how much your followers really want to know. Yeah, we want to know everything. <laughs> when it comes to paedophilia, um, it's, it's not that uncommon. Hmm. So... And you'd say, well, well, women would never do that because there's a natural women mothering instinct and so on. And there's female paedophiles who'll give up their babies for that and, and experience sexual pleasure from it. Um, and when we say babies, we might mean young children or you might mean an actual baby. There's plenty of cases of, of, of this happening. Now, there are people who will do that simply because it's pleasurable there are people who hand over their children for far worse than than you know just standard paedophile activities they've handed over their kids knowing they'll be tortured to death um but there was a, a documentary by a polish guy i watched recently it's on it's on youtube and people can find that if they it's really very very hard viewing um this is this is the world. This is humanity. This, Eyes of the this devil. You're referring to, unfortunately, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you did you watch the whole Watched thing? Watched it. Yeah, it's yeah, tough. Yeah, it's really yeah. tough. Spare parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if yeah. the if the child is of no more use, they go for spare parts. Um, it's it's like the like if you were writing a horror movie, you'd be like, nobody's going to believe that's come on, <laughs> nobody's going to believe that. But this is this is a standard operational procedure within paedophilia. Now, if you add fame and money. Um, and you're dealing with people who are narcissistic psychopaths, which you would need to be. You'd need to be somewhere on the spectrum to consider putting children or anybody through that kind of suffering for your gratification. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's gonna it's gonna make it it's gonna make it worse. The, the the being close to fame, being close to wealth like that makes it worse. I mean, when I read that lost profit story and saw the conviction, mm. and and the the thing about the babies, mm. I just thought surely. This has got to be made up. What what possible satisfaction could someone get mm. from a baby? 
It just, it, I couldn't yeah. comprehend that anyone could do anything like that. I was thinking this is must, it's got to be media hype. But he, he, his conviction relates to that, I think. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, this is way more common than any of us would want to know. There's a guy, there's a guy I listen to on YouTube sometimes. Uh, he was in in prison in, in Virginia called Jay Williamson, and he was telling a story of a guy he shared a cell with, and it was found out that he'd killed a baby um, through. Through sex, through forcing the baby into all sex. Oh my sex. god! Yep, yep. Holy shit! Yeah, the other prisoners got hold of him, and the guards just turned away. It's, yeah, it's, and they just let it happen. Um, it's it's awful. I mean, we're talking about. I, I just think, like, if you get uh, intergenerational trauma, highly traumatized children who were probably raped themselves, and then they grow up into adults and they become drug addicts, and it doesn't matter whether they had a high IQ or not, they've been hit that many times and drunk so much alcohol. And the, the violence is so awful that they're in, their IQ just drops. And they're just, it's like being possessed or something. They're just so full of horror, so full of rage, incapable of the the softer human emotions, incapable of compassion and empathy. And they just think, well, I don't care about me. I don't care about life. Why would I care about a kid? And uh, they do what they do. So Watkins got stopped. He's doing a life sentence. Michael Jackson, if he did it, he got away with it. What factors do you think enabled him to get away with it? He was in plain sight, kind of like Jimmy Savile. Just what? Just watch your comments. Just watch your comments on my video on the video I did with you. The fans are so vociferous in his defence, um, pathological. They get hysterical about this, and they. I, I keep trying to say like. Like the example I just gave, which is absurd. Imagine me going to, okay, I go to the Latino area of Los Angeles and I, I, I go around the houses saying, can I please have your boys come and stay the night with me? See what happens to me. Because what these people are doing is they, they, can't, sub, they can't do the intellectual leap of subtracting fame and wealth. If you subtract fame and wealth, that gentleman michael jackson had no business being in a room with somebody else's kids as a 35 i think he did it i think he started when he was 32 and it went through until maybe his late 30s under what circumstances am i going to let a child of mine hang out with a 35 year old who's who's not who's not uh, a blood relative and even even then i just i just with a man probably i would rather not i'd rather not under any circumstances it's just you know, for a ton of different reasons, the very last one would be uh, fear of sexual abuse. But it's on the cards. Like you can't. We we we. I personally think we live in a culture where we've deliberately damaged our relationship with truth, and it's okay for a little bit for people to be solipsistic and live in their own little worlds. But we must grow up. We really must grow up culturally now. I think like, and you look at cases like this. And as you rightly say, okay, there are sick individuals and they're, they're going to try. How do we get away with that? For so long, so blatantly, there's a team of adults around him. Do they look at each other and go, oh, we brought five more boys in last night to watch a movie with, eh, yeah, okay, what, are you going home? Yeah, okay, see you tomorrow, Dave. Like, what? You know what he's doing. But, but if you have a culture that's ultra-predatory, uh, uh, very... I am a capitalist, but I think we live in a version of capitalism that has no future. It's this 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 throwaway consumer capitalist culture. It's dog eat dog. It's rapid. It's cutthroat. Yeah, then you would, because then you get to tell people, 
well, I've worked with Michael Jackson. Oh, okay, that means you that means you get one step up the dominance hierarchy, a little bit more money, a little bit more access, and then I said you would. One could a person could make that choice. And what's even worse is my source told me that. You know, we hear about the survivors of these people in the West, you know, well-spoken mm. people who speak English. Mm. But there's like a pipeline to like the Philippines and Haiti and all these other countries. And we For, for Michael? Yeah, that's what my source told me, yeah. Where these, we, we, we mentioned VIP um, networks that, that procure and supply. Well, they specialise in going to the poorest countries of the world, don't we? We never hear mm. what happens to those kids. No, no. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's that's. I mean, the only ones I know are kids who are. Well, they were they were the the people the people I worked with were famous in their own right, so there would be an upper limit to what you could do. So I thought it was just what I'd had described to me is you watch a normal film, then you put on the porno movie, and then the boys who are there jerk off or jerk each other off. Sorry to be so graphic, and he's in the corner doing the same. And that was it, but if it's if there's pipeline from Haiti, I don't I I don't know that that would be it. Yeah, the the, the poorest countries, um, life is cheap, isn't it? So, mm. Mm. all right, let's finish this then with Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. What's your take on him? Robin Williams, um, I think um, there was a, there was a video I did about Robin Williams, and it it, it did go viral a couple of years ago. Um, it's age, mate. You can't sit. You can't even sit still for long. You can't run for long. It hurts. You can't walk for long. And then you sit still, and that hurts. Um, and I, what I was saying is that I think there was unresolved, deep-seated, unresolved trauma there. I know at the time that that he took his own life, he was under a tremendous amount of pressure um, because of the the divorce and and, and other factors as well. Um, but I do think there was there was a lot of unresolved childhood trauma there that created like a CPTSD response that he was really struggling with. Yeah. All right. I mean, it made him funny. It made him a very, very funny man. And there is that, there was an element of narcissism there, which is he could manipulate people and he was aggressive. So you have the fight for and response that's typical of narcissism, but he channeled it to comedy. He channeled it to making people feel happy and, uh, and joyous. But I think, I think if we take a long look at our favorite comedians, uh, people like him, you will see that there's, Probably trauma is what has made them as funny as they are. So is he a case of the best art and creativity comes from human suffering? I think he really is, yeah. yeah. All right then, wow. Um, absolutely amazing podcast. I'm sure it's going to get a lovely reception. Please let us know what you think about this today in the uh, comments. And if you're going to troll... I'm sure they will let you know. <laughs> They're going to let Richard you know. Yeah, about come Michael Jackson. <laughs> he has his own channel. <laughs> the link yeah. is in the description yeah. all, box. All that crap sent over my way. I don't know who you are, buddy, but I want to tell you this about I'll Michael. Put it, I'll put it near the top of the description box. Just one, one click away. Cheers, Sean. Well, please. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, mate. But if you're going to troll him, at least press the subscribe button. <laughs> Huge thank you to all of our new subscribers. Logo's down there in the corner of the screen. Huge thank you to Material Studios up in Liverpool for filming these podcasts. And um, I look forward. <laughs> I mean, we're stuck on so so many um, 
big topics today and, and perhaps points of contention. Definitely. Oh, but Divisive. You, you're going to have a spicy, <laughs> spicy comment section here. I think the woke brigade is perhaps going to... I don't care about... Bring it on. I'm way more scared of Michael Jackson fans than I am of the woke brigade. Jesus. I'll just blow them over. Them. MJ fans, though, they come hard. <laughs> Sounds like I need to see if Ash will reach out to Jordan Peterson and, and Douglas Murray as well. Absolutely. Have you done anything with them? I've I've reached out to uh, Jordan, but I think like he's got so many interviews on at the moment, oh, like promoting his second book. So I'm going to give it some give it some time. Hasn't he been on Rogan a few times? He has, yeah. They're good, yeah. and so is Douglas as well. They're great, and they're yeah. great podcasts when he's on Rogan. Yeah, really good fun. Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to revisit them. All right, and a huge thank you to you, of course. Thank you. Yeah, give me a hug. Oh yeah, lovely. Well, yeah, yeah. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's good to meet you finally. Yeah, you too.